Hello. Welcome <laughs> you me to, talk. to the Y debate <laughs> with me, Callum Roy, and Mike Martin, who was cutting it extremely fine there. Uh, we had a 10 second countdown, and Mike was running around trying to put his earphones in. Um, <laughs> what was going on? Was that a, a last second pee break, or, or um, are you making a break? Private. It's private. Pri- it was private. Uh, it was I one have of those. Nice brew now. Nice. So, yeah, I sat down and it says ten seconds, and I thought, shit. <laughs> that's why I stayed silent when we started. I thought, let's 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 see if he plays it. He plays it right. Well, I waited um, for a second, and then I was like, you know what? I'll just do this one. So this week, we, as as you know, guys, on the wide debate, basically what me and Callum do is we find books that interest us every single week. At the minute, we're going to choose concepts and stuff in the future. We've got a pretty cool one coming in two weeks, which I'm going to really enjoy. Um, and what we do is we force ourselves to read them that whole week. And then we come on here and we discuss through the theories, the strategies. We discuss through what, um, what we learn from them, basically, and what's valuable and what isn't, and how two people from completely different educational backgrounds um, understand the basically the content and whether it's, it's usable in real life. So this week we did the art strategy. The, yep, the art strategy. I, was, I don't know, I was just taking the baton from you there. I was going to run with that. Yeah, we did the art strategy, which is a game theorist's guide to success in business and life. And um, I was learning about what game theory was, because I didn't really know when we came into this. So I had to had to sort of brush up on my game theory knowledge. Um, and I discovered that there was a lot of math involved <laughs> with game theory. <laughs> and uh, that that kind of, uh, yeah, that kind of messed with me a little bit. I, I found this book a little, little t- tricky because of the, the math involved. I don't know um, how you felt about that. Did you think it was even necessary? Yeah, George just popped in a comment there. Got to get that last-minute pee-breaking, guys. Exactly. Yeah, she knows you well. Yeah, exactly. Callum went for a dump just before we came on live. So it's, 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had half an hour to do my dump. <laughs> um, no, I, thought, I found the math in the book was a bit um, unnecessary. I think teaching you the strategy behind it and the logic that... that, that, that that works is nece- was necessary. I don't think the mathematical equations that were in the book were. I thought they. they so so the book was good. Th- the book was good. Yeah, just as as a, as a first thought. Yeah. What, what I would have suggested if I'd have been his editor is why did you write ten stories of strategy at the beginning of the book, and then refer back to each of them as as a separate section at the end later on in the book right near the end because it's like a, it, took, it takes about 16 17 hours to read this is a super long book really 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 loads involved didn't need to be that Actually, if you're book. trying to get it done in a week but if you've wrote 10 uh, stories of strategy at the beginning i can't remember what the first one was but whatever the oh the first one was the number game guessing the number uh choose a number between uh, uh, uh 10 and 100 and you had five guesses to try and win some money um then he refers to that real much much later on in the book but if you've got uh, one of them early and then you go right to the end of the book and you're talking about auctions or something like that. I can't remember what the exactly the last chapter was, but you've kind of forgot the story. So you've got to go back to the first story, then come back to the end and back to the And it kind of, it should have been written. Here's the story of strategy. Here's the chapter about it. Here's the story of strategy. Here's the, I, and I think it would have been a lot easier to read. Yeah, the, the, um, the structure of the book is one of the things that kind of threw me off a little bit, I think. Uh, the other thing that threw me off was because... Um, 
uh, I wasn't at home for a couple of days this week, I was using the audio version quite a lot. And the math in the book, I'm sure, is a bit of a mindfuck, but doing it on the audio version, when he's like spitting out super fast equations, like if x to the power of five multiplied by six, I'm just like, I'm sorry. And I'm not, I can't just go back through all of that to try and work it out because I don't have the mathematical knowledge anyway. Um, so I kind of, yeah, I've, I found that really tricky. And also graphs, there's lots of graphs involved. But I guess that is, that is the, I should have been expected with, with game theory because there is a lot of um, statistics and probability involved. Um, Most of it was common sense. Most of it, if, if, they say, if they tell it you, it's like, all right, so you just step back three. three, And it uses chess as an example in the book, which I thought was good because I love playing chess. I try and get Cameron to play every day, but he won't play me anymore because I don't let him win. Um but it's it's probably my favorite game. I learned to play it when I was like three year old, and I, and and I think the 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 strategy behind playing chess is you. And I don't think it's it's intellect. I don't think you've got to be smart. I think you start to see the patterns, and once you see the patterns of the way the pieces move, you look at the board and you just see all the different patterns, and then you think right, and and then and because you're putting together shapes rather than putting together. Okay, so if I move to from this one to this one, then they move from this. You just see where they're all going to go and what's going to happen next, and and it, and it kind of, and I think that's just experience. But yeah. uses chess as an example, which I think is really good. I think that's the biggest barrier to entry with chess, or it was for me anyway. Is it was like I can't remember how all the pieces move, and I'm trying to because you obviously have to know how your pieces are going to move, and then you have to mirror that and look at how the other pieces are going to move, and be like, okay, I can be attacked from here. And it took me, I don't know. I thought it was something. It was something that stopped me from playing chess until like last year. I was I didn't even touch it because I was like, oh, it looks a bit too patterny. Because talking about intelligence and things that we, uh, things that we're strong at and things that we aren't strong at, I would say that pattern recognition is something that I'm not particularly strong at. And um, mathematics, I've never been particularly strong with math. So I think those are like some of the my See, areas of I'm weakness. Brilliant at maths but I can't mm -hmm. fucking read and I can't spell. Never been able to read or spell. I'm great with shapes, great with math. Completely the opposite. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and that kept me out of um, chess for a while. But it's also just what you're like, you know, it's what you're surrounded by a lot of the time because, you know, you, you say that you can't read and you can't spell, but we're doing a book a week. You read tons and you um, have written loads <laughs> of books. <laughs> so it, it's like what you surround yourself with because you immersed yourself in that kind of stuff and you got up to speed. And if I immersed myself in like practicing my math and pattern recognition, I'm sure I'd be able to get up to speed with it because I think intelligence is really about how well you learn things rather than how much you know. Um, but I never went to school for math. I've just always been dead good at it. Yeah, I don't you just had a natural. I don't Someone will say to me, what is the the, the 3.1, whatever it is for pi and stuff like that? And how do you work out the radius of a circle? And how do you work out the area and, the, and all the rest of that and circumference of a circle? And I'll be like, I don't fucking know because that's not something I'm good at. I'm just naturally really good with numbers. Like I've always been really good with numbers. And and and, and if, if if somebody says to me, if, if, if I have to figure out how much money we're going to make on a project over the next six months as to whether to invest X amount per month into a... I'm 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 on it straight away. Um, yeah. I mean, even Whereas I would avoid that. Yeah. If I'm in a meeting and somebody says to me, "Do you want to do XXX?" and I'll be like, "It took me 30 seconds to work out whether over the next six to 12 months I'm actually going to make a profit, looking at how long a customer sticks, how much an average customer's worth on a monthly basis, how much the actual subscription value is, whether we lose or it goes down, and all the rest of that shit, and I can figure it out super quick. And I've always been able to do it, even when I was a kid, when I didn't understand maths like the way you, you, you teach it in school um i was just always really lucky now cameron's the opposite 
not the opposite, but Cameron's like good at English, but he's also really good at math. That's yeah, that's good. Like, I, I, yeah, I ended up resenting math, and I, I think, like you said, I sort of avoided it. And then because of that, you fall so far behind. You're like, oh, I can't possibly go. You know, if you're not very good at you, you're not very good at English in school, and you, you, you're like, oh, well, I'm no good at reading, so I would just stop reading. It's like the opposite of the compounding effect. Like, <laughs> like your skills, you know, you get the skills, and then when you're more, I was talking to my friend about weightlifting the other day. He was like, I've only had dumbbells for like a month, and he's already seeing that he's getting like growth in his arms. And I was like, yeah, and that will that effect will compound because the more you lift, the better your technique will get. And the better your technique is, the more you'll get out of the lifting that you do. So it's like it compounds. It's the same with. But also the more your body gets used to it, so it stops progressing as much. A lot of people get a lot of growth at the beginning. And then after after the, after the four or five months, they'll find that um, they stop. And that's when people give up. Yeah, the newbie gains they talk about that. Yeah, long term. Because basically, the first time you go to the gym, you're like, wow, look at me in the mirror after you've just done a work. Well, then the next day, you can't get out of bed. Yeah. Uh, Right. Let's let's push on with the the book. Um, Yeah, let's get into it. Um, Yeah. So the first one is We Are All Strategists. We Are All Strategists. Um, It says quite early on in the book that everybody thinks strategically. And um, that it's something that everyone does, whether they're conscious of it or not. So I, I went into this and I was like, I'm not a very strategic person. And you know, I don't really, I tend to just let things happen around me and, and I sort of, you know, choose what I think to be the correct path. But that is strategy. It's just a different type of strategy. It's, it made me look at strategy in a different way. Because before this book, I was kind of looking at strategy in a sort of like a Sun Tzu art of war, like... <laughs> Uh, or like Miyamoto Masashi kind of strategy. Um, and the only real strategy I knew, because it says game theory, and there is an element of gaming involved, but it isn't the way that I was looking at games as in like sports or like video games. Um, and, you know, that that was kind of my, that's how I've been introduced to strategy. Well, that's how I practice strategy. Um, where I don't have the kind of... Uh, experience with strategy in a kind of like a business um way which it talks about quite a lot but i have more strategy in a uh, i've i would say that i'm more uh, experienced with strategy in a social way um than in a business way definitely um but what See, did you I think what, i was interested I, in your thoughts on that because obviously you're you've had a lot of strategy with with um like business strategy and you're kind of like the way of you strategize in that respect was quite interesting to me it never that never really when i think it it never came to i mean first thing i started to see was like like my little girl so um her strategy around getting me to do absolutely everything is to completely ignore me as though i'm so so let's say i take her out for something to eat and i go to pass her her food she will look away and she's autistic but but that's not the reason she does it on this on this occasion she looks away and she completely just stares in the opposite direction as if like I'm not taking that off yet. She wants me to feed her. She wants me to think it. She can't speak, so she will instead. She just completely blanked me and move her body away. And I thought that was thinking. And and my first, I guess, growing up, we um we moved. I went to about fifty or sixty different schools, and I think my first, my first, what what would you call it? Encounters with needing to be strategical was mm-hmm. when you join a new school. Um, you don't 
necessarily want to go in every single school that you go to and have lots and lots and lots of fights and be the outsider and be the thingy kid. So strategically, I had to learn how to avoid conflict, how to befriend the right people, the cool kids, so that you automatically became a part of the cool gang. So that every school I went to, I never ended up one of the kids who got bullied or the kids that thingied. And obviously there was a lot of strategy involved in that that you don't realize you're doing as a child when you're very, very, very young. And I think that was what enabled me as I got older to succeed in a lot of different areas and do a lot of different things because I'd had to constantly be moved from school to school to school growing up was um, you're always strategically trying to put yourself in the right position so that you don't get attacked, so that you don't end up getting in violent situations, so that you end up friends with the cool kids, so that um, it's... Even though I was a little a little shit, I still wanted you. You don't necessarily go into a new school thinking I'm just going to try and cause trouble with everybody. So I guess yeah. that was my first thingy with strategy. But as far as strategically for business, I guess I guess it, that's that's obvious. I mean, everybody's everybody's out for themselves. Yeah, everybody, everybody acts in their own best interest. So if you look at it like that, you are you're always going to make the right decision. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's kind of funny you talking about school as if it was like prison. <laughs> like, yeah, I'd always go, I'd never mess with the, <laughs> never mess with the kids. I don't want to get attacked. It's like, wow. <laughs> My well, school is like school, prison. If you think about it, school is just the same. going to a different environment. The teachers are the screws. Um, and they're there. So, so basically as kids, I mean, we used to, um, sneak off the back of, of school and I did this in most schools where I went and we'd go and smoke weed around the back of school. Um, and then we'd go back into school stone. And then as we started to get older, we'd, we'd wait outside the shop and try and get people to go in and buy us bottles of cider. So we'd get our dinner money in the morning, set off, go and get people to buy us bottles of cider from the off license. And then we drink it and go into school drunk. We were proper little terrible, terrible, terrible children, but it was all about, trying to push the boundaries and get away with as much as possible without getting caught. Um, or if you got caught, then being able to say, well, you know what, we we enjoy it more than if we'd have just done what all the rest of the kids do. Yeah, um, I think some people like gamify school in a way to be like, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I'm in class and I'm learning and I want to beat my classmates' score on these tests. Like they play by the internal rules set by the by the teachers of like when you're in the classroom, you have to try and you know achieve certain things, and that's how they gamify it. But then other students like yourself have gamified it in a way of like, what? How can I mess with these teachers and get away with it? Them. Yeah, because I guess the rules. No, I, that was not my experience in school at all. I, I didn't have that kind of experience. Although, like, strategically, that's where I felt like maybe I, uh, like, I, I think n- upon reflection after reading the book, I, I have definitely been, I've, I'm definitely an okay strategic thinker. But um, as a kid, I because I got picked on at school, and I used to, th- the, the time was like, oh, why is it me? And then another part of me now looking back at that is like yeah i could have been a little more strategic with um you know how my interactions with people and like if i knew that someone was like a a a bully or a dickhead or someone that was probably going to treat me badly if i got on their wrong side and they like you know tried to mess with me the way i responded to that should have been strategic rather than maybe honest because i i'm very uh that's one of my issues i'm very like i'm i'm just kind of honest with my i i wear my heart on my sleeve if something like pisses me off then i'll be pissed off if something makes me upset then i'll be upset um and it's something i've definitely worked on but like in school it was really bad uh 
and um i used to trigger people quite a lot by just being like authentic i think which it sounds like a good thing but i, I think there's tell, a time and a place i always tell cameron if any and, and, and we've never it's never come up but i always say to him be vicious and and he's like but well, you, you say don't fight and don't think it. it's like you but if somebody's gonna pick on you somebody's gonna attack you or somebody's gonna hurt you if you're so vicious the first time it happens to the point where nobody else is gonna think I don't want this to happen to me. And my missus is like, you can't tell him to do stuff like that. And I was like, but you know what? It's the best way to get left alone. Like, for example, I, I remember going to a new school in a place called, not Haywood, it was Moston. I went to a school in, in Moston. And I remember going into the class and the kid um, sitting directly next to me. I was the new kid and I come into the class and you sat there with your pens and your pencils and your stuff and you sat in the teacher's mm-hmm. going on. And he's like, you fucking little dick or something like that. And he says, you f- t- t- to me, ne- sat next to me. And then I looked at him and I went, shut your fucking mouth. And then I carried on doing what I was doing. And then he said something else. So I stuck my pencil right in the back of his hand. I just stuck it through his hand and then carried on sitting there. And, and this kid starts screaming. I was only young. Um, and, and and I remember him going, ah, and he starts screaming and crying. And then he's like, he stabbed me with his... I was like, no, I didn't. I didn't do any. And, and I was like, and I completely denied it as if it never happened, right? But in that school, after that one little thing that happened, right? I never got in trouble at all. And, and the school in, in Boston that I went to was a super... Like it, it's a rough area. It's a, it's a rough area in Manchester. It's not not a nice area. And it's like if you go into that situation and you overreact to the point where it's like, uh, nobody, then the, the, that shit doesn't happen no more. And I've always said to my son, you're better to overreact on the first occasion than than suffer years of being bullied and and and, and internal because it just doesn't work. Unfortunately, throughout history, like we've said in, in previous books, um, yeah. Th- th- uh, might is right let's say the, the the guys that get remembered throughout history are the ones that, are, that do super crazy vicious stuff and unfortunately i feel that it still works in today's society to a certain extent um th- where where emotional bullying is 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 kind of as as far as it goes so if you do something where like crack them on the head of a chair or something i i believe it's a better way of dealing with it unfortunately than than the other way especially as a kid when you're not going to get arrested for it but maybe i'm wrong yeah I mean, I, maybe I think there's a there's a, a nuance to it. I can definitely understand the whole like the overwhelming aggression principle. You know, like they they do say like if you are in a situation where I, loads of people say like oh you like you don't know me, man. I'll see red in a fight and like start going nuts. And loads of people say that. And I I don't know whether you know that's normally an excuse for people that don't know what they're doing. But um, there is I don't think I think there's definitely something for just being like super scrappy just just like being like the overwhelming aggression thing what was this um uh horatio nelson you know the 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 admiral nelson the chap nelson's columns built for him in london um he was um in these napoleonic wars he fought against the french and the spanish um and um his tactic was to basically he, he would do ridiculously dangerous aggressive moves in his ship um and it to the point where it would just like it would almost scare the opposition into like the french and the spanish would even though they almost always outnumbered the british navy in these um in these altercations the british navy would do such like heinously messed up things like hitting them with all of their guns really quickly and then it, it was just they would cause such chaos that the French would be like, I don't want to draw because like, in naval combat back in the day, you'd have to like draw up next to the ship. Like, you know, like pirates of the Caribbean, they want to get like next to each other and then fire. So they get like the most efficiency out of their guns. Um, 
and Nelson would, would always just be like, yeah, let's just get in the mixer and just hit them with all everything we've got as fast as possible and just kill as many of them as we could. And like the losses that the other people would, the French would get, if they were fighting against Nelson, they'd be like, fuck, I don't want to fight this guy. Like he's just gonna, he's gonna, he doesn't care if he gets his ship shot up. He's just going to try and kill as many of us as possible. And, um, yeah, there was, I mean, there was merit to that. He, he obviously died in a battle, but still, there's a massive column and the British Navy were, you know, a world you, superpower. You talk about that. it in this book later on, don't they, the strategy in that. And, and I think it, it, when they say about uh, talking like a general, and in a lot of occasions, that is kind of how they've won, is, is they've literally, they've like burning the boats, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, yeah. and, and he took over the whole of Mexico. It was a case of saying, look, that, that, that means, unfortunately, you have to push forward and you have to be vicious, and you have to be violent, and you have to, otherwise, you're all going to die because there's no, there's no turning back. Um, right. And I think, I think, if it, I think, in a lot of occasions, people nowadays, especially, um, I don't think it's as much in the non, like the UK and and the US and countries like that where we've all been made soft. Um, I think in in there's a lot of other countries where people will still be vicious if 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 they're backed into a corner that way. Um, and, and it's kind of expected. Whereas I, th I think, I think a lot of, I, I think nowadays, I think I, th I honestly, I've said it before. I think people have gone super fucking soft, like so, so soft. I remember kids used to get cracked with rulers and stuff like that across the, across the fucking hands when they were, when, when they've been naughty in school and shit like that. Whereas nowadays to the point where is if a child got hit by the parent with it, don't get me wrong. I've never hit my children, but if a child was to hit a parent, I mean, a parent was to hit a child nowadays, People would say that that would traumatize you. Yet back in the day, kids would get hit with, I, th I think it was canes and stuff like that. I mean, mum used to say that it used to happen all the mm -hmm. time to her because she was very like me um, and she was very rebellious. So I think we've just gone soft. Yeah, I think there's an element of going soft, but also a lot of that stuff was unnecessary because we still had naughty kids back then, but we had naughty kids that were more uh, adept with using violence because they'd been told that violence is the suitable punishment for non-violent things, Do you which I think like, that just sets the precedent of being violent. As people, right, human beings were always looking for a reason to bitch and moan, right? Always, yes. right? And Especially no English how, people. No matter how mollycoddled, right, you are, right, you're always going to be looking for a reason to bitch and moan, meaning... Right, the kids who got smacked with the rulers would go home and they'd bitch and moan about getting smacked off the teacher with the ruler, and they wouldn't be instead bitching and moaning about stuff that makes them feel uh, depressed. And it's like, oh well, you, you took a crack; it'll toughen you up. Don't be soft. Go on, carry on, go and play out. And and it gives them more. I, I just I just feel like at the minute it's that easy that everybody's right. got reason to bitch and moan. And they're kind of worrying about the wrong stuff. Like if you if you if you were, if you were more worried about like getting smacked about by your teacher, you'd be like, ah, well, you know, I don't care about people bitching about me in class. Or like, I think as well, it's like we, most interactions, like where the interactions take place in terms of like going home and being all depressed and stuff. Cause like you said, like now nah, we'll just go and play out where people don't, kids don't play outside anymore because um, everyone's scared of pedophiles and video games were a thing. Pedophiles um, were always about, we just didn't know about it because we didn't have the internet. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. Like my my dad told me stories about when he was a kid, and like the the like everyone would know who the neighborhood pedophile was. And they'd be like, "Yeah, don't go over to like, don't go near that guy. And if he asks you for anything, don't go. Near, you know, don't say yes. And like, you just know. But now it would be like, how can they possibly have a pedophile in my neighborhood? Which is probably a good thing. Like, why you don't want no, a pedophile is, is in there your a neighborhood? Website where you can find them all, or is that just um, in America? 
Yeah, I think they have to, if they're in your, I think if they're in your area and you have kids, I think they have to make you aware. I think they try and put them away from places with like lots of schools, which is one of the issues with living in the countryside like we do is that because everyone's quite spread out, they they tend to dump pedophiles down here because they're like, you know, well, <laughs> he's not going to be near that many schools. <laughs> we'll stick him in this really? nice little village. I, I think so. Yeah, I can't... I, can neither confirm or deny if that's official or not. I have to ask my old man about it. But um, yeah, I think I, I think that's something they do to, to because like obviously you can't put them within a certain radius of a school, and if you stick them in like London, for example, you're always going to be close to a school or a family with kids. But so if you, if they're a prolific pedo and they get out of jail, they're like, oh, we'll rehome them somewhere where they won't do much so damage. You should move near a school. Strategic, be strategic. Move if you don't want to get lanced, move near a school, <laughs> keep yourself safe. But then, uh, I think I don't know a bunch. Most of the uh, pedophiles that I've you know come across in my life have been in schools <laughs> as like teachers and stuff like that. So, um, I schools guess are pretty would, dangerous though, too. We are. We've got a couple I mean, of comments first. Warning. Let's check it out. Don't smack people over the head with chairs or stab them with pencils. Great advice, Georgia. Uh, morning, yeah, guys. Andrea says, morning, guys. I'm off to an appointment. ligament in my ankle, legs, so watch it later. What a wonderful weekend. <laughs> oh, no. That is no, grim. I'm sorry to right. hear that, Andrea. We'll I pulled the ligament in my toe. Cause... It hurts. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thinning strategically, right? So in the yes. book, let's let, let's focus on the book now. Uh, yep. Thinning strategically, uh, shame is stronger than desire or good health. So in the book, he talks about some woman that did something with the ABC show, um, and she was she was a fat bird, and she basically went to the ABC show and they took a load of pictures of her in like a, a, a skimpy little bikini, and they agreed that if you don't lose lose fifteen pound in a month, then um, we're going to release these on ABC. So we're going to, people are going to see what you look like. And she was more bothered, right, that her ex-boyfriend was going to see her looking like a pig in this in this bikini than she was about being overweight or she was about having bad health and all the rest of that stuff, that she lost the 15 pounds. And then the following month, she lost 13 pounds. So thinning strategy, it gave me the idea this for an actual podcast <laughs> yeah right? and i was thinking that'd be absolutely brilliant that you like get people on and it's like right we're going to help you lose weight in 30 days guaranteed right or we're going to embarrass the shit out of you and then literally yeah. all you do is you bring them around to a, a studio <laughs> take pictures of them like men just in their underpants so they're really looking big and fat or women in a bikini and then and it's like right we're gonna we're gonna bring you on and we're gonna talk about how bad you look on a podcast in 30 days time unless you do x and yeah. i think most people would be like do you know what anyone who signed up for it's like is, is it a sadist where they like being hurt um yeah but it'd work wouldn't it i mean if, if you if you if you if you're scared of uh, being naked in front of people because you because you, you don't look right yeah then i could imagine that it would work so i thought that was brilliant when, when, when i'm thinking it, it's like yeah people will actually act out of shame more than they will out of desire or or, or staying healthy definitely i think again that's like when when you look at like some of the other stuff we've read sort of chimp complex kind of things of, of being like i think if you if you're publicly shamed then you're not going to be accepted by the the 
the crew, the clan, you know, you're, you're, you're like, Oh, I don't want to get kicked out of the pack. So, or the tribe. So I need to like fit in and you're not fitting in if you've got bikini pics of your fat tummy everywhere. So I think that's uh, how that works. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I know someone who he posts every, but I'm kind of in conflict to this actually. I, I know someone who's extremely um, overweight guy and he has been Is for a really long time. 27 and 27 stone. That's the one. I think I've mentioned yep. him before. Um, he, uh, yeah, he posts a picture every single day of uh, every single day. Sorry, every single week is every Wednesday, I believe, of him himself. Like, used to be topless, but now he's put his shirt back on. But topless in his bathroom um, with like how much he lost and like a thing about the week. But it didn't really work. I don't know. I think it's already the right reasons. I think maybe he didn't feel the shame. He just didn't feel the shame. Like he was just shameless about it. And he wasn't doing it to be shamed. I think he was doing it maybe to get people to say, How's everything going? Or you're doing great. Because I think but he maybe, like maybe that. because he already made it public, he had no reason to. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he'd already, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he'd already like put it out there. He'd already shamed himself. So what's the point? It's not really a motivator if you've already shamed yourself. I guess the point is like doing a before picture and being like, this is my before picture. Look at me looking like shit. In six months time, I'm going to post another picture and I'm going to look really good. And um, having that out there, um, people being able to see that would embarrass you if in six months time, there's no picture or you post a picture and you look terrible. Because you already posted the ugly one, even if you only do slightly well. Whereas if you're super embarrassed at taking your top off, and it's like, I would never take my top off in front of anybody ever. Yeah. Then you say, right, I've taken this picture of myself, and you show the picture with this part blacked out, right, uh, down to your waist, and it's like, on this date, this is going to be removed unless I have a six-pack. And yeah. then, then because you didn't want people to see you like that, you'd be like, oh, fuck, I can't show people this. Yeah. You'd I've like, got to do some crunches. you your ass off, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I think that that would definitely be more motivating the way you're saying it and the way that they did it in the ABC show. But that's why they got these guys, the, the writers of, this, of the book, to work on the show. Um, they set it up deliberately to make it, like to give the people the most likely chance of losing the weight due to that kind of like uh, consequence yeah it's really smart it's great why strategy a dirty word yeah I, I i thought i'd put that in there we've kind of mentioned this in the next point earlier when we're talking about school and stuff but strategy like people when they think of strategy um it's almost like i don't know it, it's almost like oh you were strategizing the whole time it's, it's almost like it makes people seem like a bit of a psychopath if you're, yeah. you know yeah, what I mean? Like, so like, I think I, that that's. <laughs> I've got an example with, with me, with, with my brother, but I probably shouldn't say it on here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where he wanted to get with his girlfriend's best mate. So he did, uh, but he strategized around the whole thing. And I think that's kind of the thing that gives you a bad, a bad name is because. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, like the, <laughs> the next point we'll move on is the, the dark side of strategy, which is like Machiavellianism. Um, the, Did Machiavelli uh, write the book? Was it him that wrote the book, The Prince? Yes, The Prince. Right. I haven't read he's, it. I'm... He not well. I've got it as one of our things to do. But let's um, go. He's he's one of the guys who would have stabbed a pencil through the back of somebody's hand for doing something to, in school to stop the situations getting worse. And yeah. if you if you're into a situation straight away and it's like okay, well if I let this go, uh, a lot of people would have looked and thought if you've just done that to the back of somebody's hand, that is really bad. It's terrible. But if I hadn't done that to somebody's hand. 
But by dinner time, it had been three of them taking the piss. By the end of the week, it would have been five or six of them as a gang all taking the piss and bullying. And by then, you can't do anything about it. Whereas if you just overreact right at the beginning, and that's what Machiavelli used to say, um, and it's how his the book The Prince is about. Um, I've not read it yet, but I have got it on my list, and it's definitely one I'm going to. Nice, we got to do that. Here. That would it's be awesome. About when you get power, how to stay in power? It was actually my business <clears> partner who recommended that I read it. Um, that's cool. Yeah, because lots of people are like, oh, it's real, it's really dark. And it, I think it is dark, but there's also other people read it and they're like, well, no, it's more of like a, you know, it's not necessarily saying that this is something that you should do. It's just saying that this is something that is, that people might do and it's possible and you have to be aware that people will actually like, you know, go to whatever it takes. It's all about sort of the ends justifying the means, isn't it? It's like, in the end, I'm going to get my ass kicked by a massive group of people. So if I stab this through this guy's hand, if you look at those two events as happening next to each other, it doesn't necessarily look that bad. It, it, it's almost like you're acting in self-defense, but just preemptively. Yes, um, exactly. Which is preemptive self-defense. That's what we'll that's, call it. That. That's, 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 that's a great way. That's a great way of do, like getting off of an assault. <laughs> you go into court and you're like, him. why it did was, you break that guy's nose? <laughs> well, they do say that like there is a preemptive element of self-defense isn't there like in in le legally because if if someone like gets in your face and is like no, i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna bite your fucking nose off or something and you punch him in the face you've just defended yourself because that person is the assault was their like intention towards you like that is preemptive self-defense there's an example of it, a perfect example of it in our next week's book. And I'm not going to tell us what the next week's book is, but there's a perfect example where a guy does something and he completely goes OTT. And when they get him to court, he explains why he did it. And he was preempting that he would have been shamed uh, had he not reacted in that way. Um, so I'll remember to make a note about that next week for the, for the court case um, because he got away with it. No, oh, I'm oh, interesting. Away. He got away ah. with it in court because he was actually he was acting honourably, uh, and it was kind of a preemptive retaliation. Okay. Um, yeah, he just created <laughs> a new, that. a new, a new, a new legal precedent that yeah. if, if, if you are on the street and break someone's nose, it's like no, no, no. Next week he was going to do yeah. it to me. Now he's not because he he's going to be at home with nursing a face and two black eyes. So the minority report, like the thought police in the future, he was going to commit a, commit a crime, so we shot him in his house. Really it's like, that in it, yeah. yeah, it's cool. Really, like, I don't know, during COVID, I was like, are we going to be in the minority report soon? <laughs> I was kind of freaking out about it. Um, cool. So, yeah, the basis of game theory, I thought I should probably put up a little definition here for people that were wondering, like me, don't really know what game theory is. Um, and it is the study of how people make decisions in situations where the outcome depends not only on their own actions, but on the actions of others. So it's not just strategizing about what I'm going to do. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. It's looking at the other person and being like, well, they're going to do I'm going to do X, Y, Z, which will make them do uh, A, B, C. So I should change my strategy in order to beat them to the punch, so to speak. Um, if we're talking about preemptive self-defense. Which is why all these these double user games on online have, have gone mental. They're absolutely, they've, they've got millions and millions of users now, aren't they? Because they think about every single action that's and their reward. And I mean, even these small little lights that come on on games and it's like, Oh, you've had a flash. Somebody starred you or somebody's X you or somebody's love hearted you. And then that shit fucking, I mean, game theory is in social media. 
not just in playing games, engineering, well, everything, isn't it? Mass of it, yeah. Um, and 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 anything. If you're trying to build a cult or a culture, um, right, and you're trying to build a crowd or you're trying to get a following of any kind, game theory is essential to actually make it stick. And I think that's right. that's one of the things a lot of people don't look at it because they say, oh, game theory must be all about playing PlayStations and shit like that, but it actually that's isn't. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, when you look at it proper, it's in everything. That's why they had the relationship status on Facebook. That's why they have the click to like and the click to love art and whatever other buttons they have. I'm not on Facebook, but that's why people can like your videos on YouTube and that's why people can do stuff like that because the game theory around it all is, wow, yeah, you've had the 10,000 views and 500 likes and blah, 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 blah. That type of stuff makes people want to do more, which obviously in, in the long run means that they can sell ads over the top of your stuff and generate revenue. Um, it's just all game theory. It's just all it's, it's just all action, reaction. In fact, I've put one on here. Let me get to do the next two. So first thing, in fact, let me move that one. No, I'll move that one back up. We'll just read it out anyway because it's kind of... But it, that point I was making about the, about the YouTube. So a lot of examples made from things you uh, need to have watched if you haven't, uh, then you're in the dark. So basically, just just a note for this book: if you, if 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 you're gonna spend the 17 hours reading it, <laughs> it probably yeah. takes about 10. If you're gonna spend uh, 10 hours some. reading it, then you're gonna need seven hours looking at other stuff as well, just just that you don't already know about. But this is what I was on about just now: is this one? Uh, if he thinks that we think, then if he thinks that we are going to think then we both think, ah, right? And this is kind of what I wrote down when I, when I was looking at the in-depth strategy going levels deep, yeah. deep, 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 this kind of... So you read it out because you'll be able to read it out to make sense. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's just... <laughs> I, to be honest, I was listening to him say it and it didn't sound... Much, uh, to the narrator saying it on the audiobook and it didn't sound much different to what you just said there. It he didn't is, say that, did it? I mean, there was a point... I. So just, there's well, this because it, it was driving me insane trying to think four levels. Yeah, in. well, there's this scene in in a movie called um, The Princess Bride, and uh, he actually mentions it in the book, which is funny. But I was thinking before he even mentioned it, I was thinking to myself, "Oh my god, like this is like the scene is kind of taking the piss out of this kind of strategy." There's like this very intelligent strategist, and then the hero, and uh, the the strategist is. Uh, like the evil strategist has put poison in one of two cups and um, he's explaining the logic behind his decision in a sort of maniacal way in a comically it's, it's comical it's a, it's a joke um, but like well you know you thought that I would uh, put the poison in, in your cup um, because if I put it in my own cup you would switch the cups and therefore I should have poisoned my own cup but and he just goes on and on and on like in a massive Line yeah. about it, and and it and just and then he drinks the cup, and then he drinks and dies. Yeah, and dies. <laughs> Inconceivable, um, yeah. and dies, and um, uh, and yeah, and the joke is, I think that the hero had been uh planning this for such a long time that his strategy was becoming immune to the poison. He was slowly giving himself small doses of the poison, so that when he got into the situation where he was fighting this poisoner, the it, the poison wouldn't take an effect on him so his strategy was like changing the rules which is quite cool that's kind of what we do with alcohol isn't it people say oh he's a lightweight so what that person then does is drinks every single day and becomes an alcoholic so that they don't act like a lightweight when they go out on the beer some, um, some of the some of the alcoholics that i've met in my life have been the biggest lightweights around like i i've know people who are alcoholics and they got absolutely smashed after like two beers it's really weird it's like Seriously. a very yeah it's a very strange 
phenomenon but they're like sloppy after two drinks You're like how did you get there but they just keep drinking the whole night it doesn't matter it's two drinks but it still gets them really smashed and they, then and all they, they need they is carry on to 25 drinks they just don't know yeah well, yeah and i think it's because mine... they get drunk so fast is why they keep going because their inhibitions are gone i think that's probably a friend of mine went to an AA meeting a few weeks back, and he said um, that he said he said he says I, got, I went in and he's been dead nervous about going in. I've I've been trying to help him and talk to him about his, his drinking and stuff for a while. And he went to this AA meeting and he said um, that basically he says he sit around and you hear these stories that people are talking about. And he said he says he he always thought alco- an alcoholic meant somebody who drank every single day, but they're just a pisshead, right? An alcoholic is somebody who, when they pick up a drink, they can't stop right so literally if there's a crate of lager in the house and somebody picks up a drink they'll drink the whole crate without stopping they won't say i'll have three cans tonight three tomorrow three that's not an alcoholic that's just somebody who who, who, who likes drinking it's, it, it, it it affects you on a different level fundamentally and i know because it affects me like that and i know and he said to me that when he got in this room and every single person that was in there told these different stories and all of their stories was based around as soon as you have that first sip, right? As soon as you have that first swig of it, the next thing you know, they're waking up 12, 24, 38 hours later, not remembering how they got there, right? Because they've gone from having a slip of a glass of wine, even if there's only one bottle of wine in the house, they'll drink the bottle of wine, then they'll go to the shop and they get more bottles of wine and then they'll bring them home and they'll carry on drinking. And that's what an alcohol... And it's, it's horrible that it's it's so ingrained in society because of the game theory that the, 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 the alcohol industry have used to make it part of society of, of, of like Western society of, of, of the UK and the US it's expected to have a glass of wine for a meal at night but when you get the people who it affects the way it affects me and the way it affects him and the way it affects alcoholics it's 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 actually fucking cruel man it's it's like it's it's kind of like making heroin a part of society but unfortunately every single person goes ott when they get addicted to it it's like it's it's the accessibility isn't it of being able to like there's only one bottle of wine in the house oh well i'll finish that and then i'll go down the shops and i can buy four more it's like makes it it's so easily accessible because of just like how like our laws on it are really lapsed because obviously the laws were drafted by people that had a vested interest in the alcohol industry Uh, it was like cigarettes for such a long time like everyone was like ah it's good for you don't worry about it um, marketing and then, industry did it didn't they? they told everyone oh you should smoke if you want to be attractive you and they, smoke and if you want to look cool <laughs> they have like knocked down they have knocked down the amount of people that smoke definitely mainly by making it inconvenient to smoke but they, i think they've also changed the they just made it harder to purchase not necessarily harder as in did, like do them the laws, that everyone but, smokes now do they cause cancer them 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 like fucking I mean, things that vapes. people are smoking vapes, yeah. i can't I, I mean, when you look at the kind of things that cause cancer, I can't look at a vape and be like, well, that won't cause cancer. Because <laughs> are we not like back in the same situation much... now that yes. we were in, this, in the 60s? Whereas, whereas back in the 60s, um, I think I've seen it on Mad Men, uh, which is, about, is a show about marketing. Um, but basically, I think, I think that's the same situation now. Back in the 60s, they're like, oh, you're cool to do this, 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 and this. So now what they've done, because smoking has eventually been looked at like, okay, it's disgusting, it stinks, it's not a nice thing to do. Maybe they're doing the exact same thing with the vapes. And then in 10 years from now, everyone's like, oh, vaping is just... A... And we're being tricked all over again in like a cycle of, of con. <laughs> yeah, and the worst part about the vape thing is that they are... I, it's, it's arguable, but I don't think it's that arguable, that they are marketed at children. 
like vapes and they on do it everywhere. They're doing it in cars. Sure. Someone will sit and vape in a fucking in, in a salon where everyone's getting their hair cut and think, well, because it's vape, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you yeah, should, and you should I, fuck up outside and do it. But like, yeah, I just think that they're so they're so like um the vapes are so like colorful and techy and like oh this like is a flavor. It's got strawberry. It's a lollipop. It's a lollipop flavor. Blah blah blah. It's like that's marketed towards children. If you've got if you're selling a product that tastes like sweets. And that is like as addictive as smoking. <laughs> it has nicotine in it and stuff. You are uh, like you're straight up marketing to children. <laughs> that's that's so evil. Um, uh, Alden have has a certain percentage of alcohol in their blood already, and just need a little bit to push them over the edge. That could be right. Ah, talking about people that are like lightweight alcoholics. Yeah, yeah that's interesting actually. And Georgia says back to microdosing. <laughs> microdosing? Does she mean she's microdosing right now? <laughs> So if you're in a de- if you're in a situation where you need to make a decision, I, I wrote this this next note because I feel like this is the question that you should always ask: What should I do next? Versus what will they do next? So really, what you should be asking most people, right, are looking at a situation as to what should I do next. But really, if you were to ask yourself the question, what will they do next, then you're in a much better position that you're going to make the right decision. Yeah, I think that there's obviously, um, I will talk about dominant strategies and stuff later on, I think. There's like some some notes about dominant strategies down there. But I think you should keep in keep in mind what your best, if they don't do anything, what your best strategy is, but also think about what their best strategy is and then compare notes. Because like the, you have that thing in, in, uh, in sport, definitely something in like jiu-jitsu, because it's not a it's a they're happening the game the game is being played at the same time so like our decisions are going on at the same time it's not like chess where you have a turn then i have a turn it's like happening all at the same time and um if you are really good at one thing um let's say you're really good at uh i don't know leg locks or something um you you're like okay well i'm gonna go out there and leg lock this person but then you know that the other person's really good at another move you might be tempted to be like okay well i'll play to just counter their move i won't play my strategy i'll play the counter of their strategy and that makes that makes you play a subpar strategy because it's you're not that good at it so when there's skill involved there's like a bit of a nuance to that thing i think it's always worth thinking about but you always have to be i used to play this game called league of legends and at the beginning is a computer game is five versus five and you choose a champion and that champion has a certain set of moves. Certain champions are really good against other champions, but, uh, you know, some are kind of equal, some are one really lopsided matchups. And um, if you know you're going to play against a certain champion, you might be like, oh, well, I won't play my best champion. I'll play a champion I'm not very good at, but I know counters that one really hard. And then you get into a game and because your skill level is so poor with that champion, you just end up getting beaten anyway because of the, you know, the, because of the way that that, that kind of shakes out because skill is a, it plays or plays a role in it. Um, yeah. I remember when I used to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there was a kid that used to have this move where he used to go to hit you with another move. So you'd throw your body weight and then he'd spin around and take you back. And he was yeah. really fucking good at it. And it was like one of his best moves he used to do. And he used to do it from lots of different positions 
And as soon as you spun your body weight, he'd kind of let go completely of his legs and flip round to you. But and he was really, really good at it. Um, and yeah. he was only a little skinny guy, but he was he was he was brilliant. At it. Right, so that's this why he had to get good at it because <laughs> he yeah. didn't want to be lying under someone <laughs> like you. I literally <laughs> last week I did a podcast with a black eye because I made that mistake. I was trying to be friendly. My strategy wasn't good enough. I was lying underneath a massive bloke who was just grinding his elbow into my face because he didn't know enough jujitsu to know otherwise. I should have just got on his back and strangled him. But if you look at jujitsu nice. as fighting, then that's what you should do. Yeah, look well, I would do now. React every time. Yeah, <laughs> go for the eyes. I did it for years, and I've not got cauliflower ears, so I must have been doing something right. Um, yeah. <laughs> people will nearly always make decisions in their best interest. This goes on to the prisoner's dilemma, right? And 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 I think we're going to talk about that soon, right? But the reason I put this in is people will always make decisions in their own best interest. And coppers use this against you. So let's say two people have committed a crime together and the two, the, the, like the police will go in, they'll, they'll have them. I think they do this more in, this, in the US and it's, it's on a lot of these cop shows than they do in, in, in the UK. They, they play more good cop, bad cop over it because I don't think they're allowed to make deals with prisoners as much as they are in the states but in the u.s i believe this happens a lot where they basically say to one you tell us everything and you'll get off or you'll only get two years or, and they say to their friend you tell us everyone the first person to tell us is going to get two years but the last person to tell us is going to get 10 and, and that, that's the situation you're in and basically one of them usually crumbles but if they both just kept the fucking mouth shut <laughs> and never said a word. Yes. The coppers wouldn't be giving you that deal. If, if you logically think about it, the way that we're talking about strategy, if, if a copper turns around and says to you, if you give me everything, right, then you'll get two years and you may not get 10. Then your answer should be, you should strategically say, well, you wouldn't be offering me this if you had anything, so piss off. However, people don't think like that. Instead, people think to themselves, oh my God, if I don't do it, he's going to do it. And, and 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 vice versa. So they're both thinking for themselves. So they both make decisions based in their own best interest. Whereas if you did it to yeah. two brothers, like the Cray twins, uh, if you did it to two brothers, they're not going to turn on each other. They can both be confident they're not going to turn on each other. And then when they do get yeah. arrested, then they go in and they say, if you tell us everything this, and if you tell us everything, they're both like, yeah, well, you won't be asking if you had anything. So um, yeah, when and am the I going police home? are relying. Yeah. And the police in that case are relying on criminals being untrustworthy which is something yeah. you can kind of safely put your money on is that criminals are probably know, mate. i've got a lot know, of mates like... who are criminals right and the the, the 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 most loyal people you'll ever meet it's just they make a living a different way something that because society tells you you shouldn't do something right so you go into a pharmacy and you buy drugs right mm -hmm. but you go to a drug dealer and you buy cannabis which is just fucking cannabis if you take that same guy and you move him to california and he's yeah. selling out of a fucking shop that pays tax then it's not a criminal it's, it's legit it's all yeah. about these what we talked about the other week whereas all these myths where it's society's built around myths to try and control people to get you to do things that is is told to you that it's wrong and it's told to you that, that criminals are not but but i, I don't think that's I, I mean people who go out and break into houses and shit like that yes obviously they, they then but, but but guys who do things that are in some countries seem to be illegal and in other places not because whoever the politicians are or whoever it is that makes the rules at the top has decided, well, we'll make that illegal and we won't make that illegal. And that one we'll put you in prison for 10 years for. But if you move across this little border here that's like fucking two miles away, then it's no longer a criminal offence. So you're no longer a criminal. So then you're trustworthy. I don't yeah. think that's the case. I think everybody is individually the, the, the same. And, and then as far as trustworthiness, I think the police officers in a lot of cases are as untrustworthy as... I mean, look at that fucking cop that was murdered that bird in uh, in London. 
Yeah. It, it, we're all just people. We all act in our yeah. own best interest. The way I was thinking of it was that um, if you're using an example of someone selling drugs in, in um, illegally um, from their flat and then someone selling drugs from uh, in California is that, that it's been legalized because there's uh, legislation that keeps them honest. So if that, um, if that, a uh, drugs store in California sold you uh, a bag of weed, but that bag of weed was actually just tobacco rolled up in a little tiny ball. Uh, made is it, it look like you know not the exact same thing. Is it not just another drug that you get addicted to? And totally. you don't even get addicted to cannabis. You get it psychological, whereas tobacco is physically addictive. Right, but my point is, if they missold you it, if they if they were like, yeah, here it is in this tinfoil, and then you unwrap the tinfoil, you're like, that's a fucking lot of tinfoil, and you get to the bottom, and you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, this isn't what I ordered. You could go back to that. Um, you could go back to that that dealership because it's in in a building and it has legislation, and you can say, I want a refund, or I want uh, to be exchanged for the correct product, or I'm calling the police because you're doing malpractice here. And you can't do that as much with if if someone just kind of like shortchanged you, a, a drug dealer messed with you. You're like you could go you over can. there and well, the, yeah, you can go the over there same, and say. The only reason you don't feel like you can do the same thing is because you feel like because the government have said it's okay to do it over here, then you've got this support network around you, right? And you've got this legislation around it. These guys are going to follow. But you've got the exact, they're just people the same. One person rips you off over here, whether they're, they're breaking the law or not breaking the law. It might be a different way that you retaliate and a different way that you work it out. But yeah. just because some politician in London has said this is illegal and this is not illegal or whoever it is that makes the rules up, it does, I, 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 don't, I, I think you have to question every single rule that you, 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 that's passed here and you need to basically say, look, why? What, who does it benefit? And and again, this is a game theory thing. Who does it benefit for me to pay attention to that law or that rule? Or that? And the only person it usually benefits is the tax man, because if he's taxing you on it, like alcohol and tobacco and all the different Valiums, methadones and shit like that, that's handed out over the counter every day in huge quantities that they make tax money on, right? And there's people addicted, more people addicted to over-the-counter drugs right, than anything else. The only reason they don't see it as a problem is because you're buying it direct from the government or by direct from a company that's paying tax to the government so it's not illegal. But it's the exact same thing. There's no difference yeah. at all over what's in our head, the myth that we've been told. Yeah, no, I, my, my point was more about the the sort of like the the um, the the infrastructure that surrounds that kind of transaction and that you have almost like, because these laws are in there to sort of protect the consumer rather than, you know, because he would just be, you know, if you went back to the, the cannabis shop in California and said, I, I want to, to change this, and the guy behind the counter said, uh, no, I'm going to beat the fuck out if you get out of my shop, you could then take that to another, you could escalate it to another level of legal intervention. Whereas if you went to a, your dealer and you were like, you screwed me, like, what the fuck? And he was like, get, off, get out of my house or I'll fuck you up. You were then, like, what, the, what you can I do? The road, could you, then you not go straight across the road and say, I've just witnessed on a phone call, I've just witnessed a guy holding a gun to somebody else's head with a bag of drugs in his hand in a, in a house at this address on this location. And then you sit across the road laughing your head off, watching as he gets dragged out by the armed police. And it's like, you're holding up your bag of tobacco saying, you, you yeah, broke the shouldn't have done rules. that. I broke the rules. Not yeah, bad. well, yeah. That's that's uh, another way that you could you could do that. I mean, it's uh, yeah, 
It's true. That's just that another work. way of looking at it. Would work. Then you, you put, you're putting the police on your side again. It's, it's a case. I, I, I'm not saying that. And also, I to your it. point, like, to your point about the trustworthiness of people, I think I, you know, I think I actually, I, I think I do agree. It's just that when you're looking at it from, if you look at it from the perspective of like these laws are keeping people honest, it's like, well, kind of. But if you need a law to keep you honest, are you any more are you not more dishonest than the person who doesn't what need does, a law but still follows it? What does still the writing say? The the rules, you know? People will nearly always make decisions in their own best interest. They make laws uh, because people are inherently selfish and will act in their own best interests. And if their best interest is to not get locked up for something or not get fined or not get in trouble for it, then they'll act that way. So people it's still them making laws means people are acting in their own best interest. But even that, what you said before about um, people uh, going to a chemist and be, and, and these laws are put in place to help uh, keep people safe and, and make sure that you get a fair deal and stuff like that. But if, if, if they was only cared about keeping people safe and helping and, and fair, they definitely 100% would not be selling tobacco or alcohol anywhere mm. because there is no benefit to any of them at all other than getting off your tits with with alcohol or smoke smoking tobacco i don't think there's is there anything beneficial to it at all ever i'm not really sure to be honest i know nicotine has like some beneficial um sort of uh, things on focus nicotine can make you more focused and that was originally they said like it reduces anxiety and makes you more focused someone i can't remember who it was a famous person quit smoking um they quit smoking, but they took nicotine tablets for the rest of their life. And their argument was that it to like increase their mental acuity was actually good. Like nicotine I, I without the smoke is not bad for you, but you still get I addicted think, to it. I think I've spoke to a few people that have said like, and I've, I've heard this a few times, somebody who smoked all their life, as soon as they quit smoking, when they're old, because they're trying to prolong their life, they end up dying. Yeah, do it uh, too late. Yeah, your body's got that used to it. That, that basically... I'm, I'm assuming what it is, is your body has become that reliant on it that as soon as you take it away, what happens is your body starts trying, it, it can't fight all the other things that would not, it would it normally be fighting because it's too busy recovering from you not having the nicotine in your body anymore, which then will, I, I would assume, reduce your, um, what, what's that called, where you get sick? and you, where, where people uh, get Immune sick system. Yeah, it reduce your immune system because it's too busy fighting this thing to say it's, you don't need confused. nicotine anymore. And yeah, it's the same with dieting, isn't it? Like even if you switch to a really healthy diet, you can like your immune system can get tanked and your you can like break out in spots. It's like, oh, I only ate frozen pizzas, and then you just switch to eating like salads, and then you're breaking out in spots and stuff because you're you you're just used to that. That's what you're used to running on. So like your engine is going to splutter a little if even if you switch to better fuel. It's just getting used to it. I wrote this down because I, it was, it was. This should be a question, not a statement. So it should have okay. a question mark at the end. No, An idiot will always act irrationally. True or false? I mean, I think it's it's kind of tricky because I think most people act irrationally quite a lot of the time. Because unlike the people who wrote read this book we're not doing those kind of complex calculations in our head mm -hmm. all the time of like oh what's what's this person you know mo they say most people think only like two moves ahead yeah um and they did a really they, they did one which was um they're thinking of a number between um between one and oh sorry between zero and 100 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you, the person who wins the game, you have to guess a number between zero and one hundred, and the winner of the game will be the person who guesses closest to half of the number the other person guessed. And my, uh, my, you know, most the most common answer is fifty, which is stupid, which is irrational because that would imply that the other person playing the game doesn't know the rule to win. And they're going to call, why would you ever do say that? 100. So yeah. you're going to think right, yeah, so so the, the half of of 100 is 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 50 is the minimum. So you're going to probably hit close to 25, aren't you? Right. Well, that's the thing. So I I my immediate reaction when I heard that was mm, 25 is probably the the most likely to win. They but know the rules. Why would anyone guess 25? Because yeah if if the other person's guessed 50 they've fucked up the game so if you guess 25 you're relying on them screwing up still which is an irrational decision and they kind of basically deduce they go all the way down and say the most logical answer is zero but it's not because zero is not a number so it can't actually it's one it has to be one well it's, okay but it's zero, like zero is not close to half of anything because it's nothing whereas one is close to half of two so if if both people say it's the person who picks the lowest number that wins, isn't it? Whoever picks the lowest number wins. Yes, and you can't get a, lo- a number lower than zero because zero you, is nothing. Zero is not a number. It's nothing. It doesn't exist. Okay, but in the game, you can pick zero. But then it, then it would be an undefined answer because zero can't possibly... They've not thought about it. If that's what they put in the book, they've not thought about it because... I understand speaking, what you mean. I understand zero. what you mean, but it's within the rules of that game. Okay, so but then, so the it, the best answer's got to be one, or it's got to be not point no 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 not one f- like going on. It can't you can't physically ha- zero can't be close to half of anything because it doesn't exist. Sure, but if it's involved in the game, then it, if it's the lowest value you can possibly get in the game, so it it it's on the table, so you will be able to um hop back to predictably irrational <laughs> yeah for sure absolutely predictably irrational is a great book i love that one and 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 i thought that this had a lot of connection to predictably irrational but that that's what i meant that whether zero is a number or not the point is that the it seems stupid to just be like well i'll pick the bottom that the lowest possible number but it makes sense if you know the game theory of breaking it down but realistically if you played that game and you were thinking about how other people will act most people only uh think two i think it's up to two one or two steps ahead which is what i'm back to your point about an idiot will always act irrationally i think most people only think two or three steps ahead which if you look at the game in a grand scheme of things is normally leads them to an irrational answer because like me they'll end up with 25 what if five people play together all at the same time then what's the best number uh, I'm not sure. I haven't got a clue, but what I'm yeah, thinking I, is if it's going to be the <laughs> average of the five, then someone's going to pick 25. For example, someone might, four people might pick one or two or seven or whatever it is, but basically the, the, the average number could be any number between, basically depends what, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Five people yeah, playing would it, com- or if three people are playing it at the same time. If three people yeah. are playing the same game at the same time, you'd be in a situation where, Picking one wouldn't be the best idea because if one person picks one and one person picks 50 and then one person picks 20, uh, let's say 12 and a half, mm. the half of 50 and the half of one put together is 51. So 25 to so 12 and a half is the actual best answer to have because that's the middle of 25 or 25.5, which is, do you get me? 
So it depends yes. how many people play as well. If, yeah, I mean, it depends on the rules. It's definitely depends on like the, the the gameplay arena. But if you listen to what you just said, and if if anyone listening just listened to what Mike said and was confused by it and was like, "What the fuck is he talking about?" That's how I felt reading this entire book, <laughs> because that's kind of how the book is like the entire way through. It is just, just really I, confusing. I like, weeks. yeah, yeah, this one needed longer than a week, definitely. Um, but we'll we'll review the book more at the end. Let, let's let's uh, talk about more of the stuff that was in it. I guess. We'll, uh, yep. We'll, I mean, um, okay. On the next Rock one. paper scissors and the power of being random. What what I never checked up, which I probably should have, right? But the the reason okay. I wrote this down is because he basically mentioned somewhere in the book that there's a rock paper scissors champion. Yes. I wonder if there has actually ever been a multiple times champion for something like this, and if it's if he has, then that is actually something to be said to the strategy and logic behind it, but I can't figure it out because there's three options and it's a 33% yeah. chance of winning. So they talk about it in the book a little bit, don't they, of saying that unfortunately they don't have the data about whether there's been like repeated champions because they weren't recording it. The people in the Rock, Paper, Scissors championship community weren't actually recording who was winning but they've only been recording it for like a couple of years now and uh, the person who came third Yep. The first year that they looked into it, the next year he placed in the top 15. So that would suggest that there is an element of skill involved. But I think the element of skill in rock, paper, scissors comes from body language, um, uh, like understanding I, people's yeah. body language. I reckon a big muscly man would pick rock. And I reckon <gasps> most hairdressers would pick scissors to start with if you knew there was a hairdresser. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I like that's a good strategy. Presents for a living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah a writer or, would just be yeah a writer would pick paper yeah i would imagine yeah. that, that basically if you knew their history you could probably figure out but but then the second they think that, that if they start using strategy they think well no because he thinks yeah. because i'm a hairdresser i'm going to pick scissors so i'm going to pick paper well they did that thing where the the two businesses didn't they this there was one business and it said if you want a uh two other businesses were competing for a contract with that business and they said that um they would set they would they would choose who who gets the contract on the basis of rock paper scissors and they had to have like an official answer from each company which i think is kind of funny it's stupid it's irrational and you're going to get a bad deal out of it it's kind of dumb but like um one company did research into it and they they found out that scissors is the most common first one that people choose um why? I'm not really sure, but most they they no, kind of came. Didn't do research. They asked children. Yeah, that's re that's that's research. Yeah, but if researching from children, children just make answers up. No, children are more likely to play rock paper scissors, so it's a it's a better audience. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they ask children what the best one would be, um, what everyone chooses on the playground, and uh, they said scissors. Everyone always starts with scissors, so they they made the assumption that the other group would probably pick a random and they would just choose scissors um so they picked rock to count as scissors and did they win because of that i can't remember don't know that i'm one. not sure because i was thinking well it's 33 yeah. like you just said it if if the hairdresser was going to pick scissors because they're a hairdresser they might think right well they think i'm going to pick scissors so they're going to pick rock to get scissors so i'm going to pick babe and it's kind of a bit of right. a crazy well again if one of the one of the businesses was like i don't know the guy's name was like harry rock he'd be like fuck it i'm picking rock and that would like throw everything off you know so 
um yeah rock paper scissors is weird i was just going to mention the power of being random um in that um random or or playing a mixed strategy he talks about like uh playing a mixed strategy is that you just mix it up every single time rather than one like instead of like uh let's say you have it in chess you have like an opening that you always play and then like a mid game that you always play and then a, a sort of finishing move that you always play um that this person is like every move you just start again and go okay let's that's what this theory is that every move you yeah. just start again uses, you're like, uses okay. penalty kicks Donny as an example yeah and he explains that in football you, you've got something like a 60 percent chance of scoring if you always go to your best side so if you use the 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 inside of your foot instead of the outside of your foot so if you're right footed then you should necessarily kick to your left and um to the goalkeeper's right and you've got a 60 percent chance of scoring and then and they explain that they've done all the equations and all all the math on this and and it actually works out that you actually have got a better chance by just being completely random with it yeah Uh, like something like 79 percent which over the top of 72 and a half percent if you always plan to go um if you plan to do it to your to your main side yeah the dominant side one's back yeah your dominant side but then just going to your dominant side all the time it's about 60 percent yeah, because goalkeepers as well will then see you do that and learn and be like, well, I have to go to that side. And goalkeepers are always better at saving to that side because most people are right-footed, so they'll kick to the right and the goalkeeper will get better at diving in that direction to save the ball. It's like playing to someone's backhand in tennis. It's like there's a bit of a paradox is if you always play um, to the person's backhand, is it the same in jiu-jitsu? If you always like, if someone is always going to be a, like a strong wrestler and they take you down every time and your wrestling defense is really bad, um, you might end up not, you, you might not get better at wrestling from that, but what you will get better at is playing jiu-jitsu from your back. So it's like they'll, they'll win the early matches by just holding you down. And then eventually you'll get comfortable on your back and you'll be able to start submitting people from your back. And then you'll get better at that. And then they'll be like, shit, I don't want to take him down. Maybe I should sit down and play guard. So he has to play on top. And then it's like playing to someone's backhand in tennis. Eventually their backhand's going to get really good. Once it catches up to their forehand, you might as well just play a mixed strategy and mix it to, to either. Um, which, yeah. And, and we're talking about mixing your strategy. I liked how they said how being random is actually very difficult because we have um, just constant sort of either societal or cultural things that make us choose a certain way or environmental stimulus. It was in that previous book. That previous book called Automations. We have these automations that we do. Yeah, build into our. Is it was it predictive? Was it was it a thing you have? That sounds like chimp paradox. Is the computer automation oh no um yeah you're right you're right uh, that it, they're talking about the same thing i think it is chimp paradox and also atomic habits they talk about the same thing of it being like a you've got an internal computer and it just defaults out certain save, things it's like save brain power what you do is you'll find something that works once and it's like right you'll just do that repetitive may i do it with everything so like if i go to a restaurant i i always i will always try and sit in the same place every single time i go wherever yeah. i pick the first time i go I'll always try and Do sit the back same. in the same place. With it. So I'd have to think about it. I don't know why. I, I hate sitting with me back to people. I like to have me back to the wall. Um, yeah. And if I so walk back everyone. into a rest, if I well, if I walk into a restaurant and my table is sometimes gone, I might say, "Let's go somewhere else." And and I'm really weird. Like, I don't know why. And it's kind of it's it's easier for me to walk out and go to somewhere different. 
than it is to actually change my habit of sitting in the place where I normally sit when I go to that particular place, which is weird that's, as shit, I guess. That's, that's a little out there. No, I, I, I get what you mean, though. I went into, because uh, I was getting on the train the other day, I went into McDonald's quickly before I um, got on the train. And uh, when I walked in, everyone was sat along the outside of the room and the tables on the inside were all empty. So all the tables in the middle were completely empty and though you couldn't get a seat around the outside of the room. And you could say that that's people being antisocial because they don't want to be like on a big table around people. But by sitting on the outside of the room, because everyone was sitting there, they were actually sitting closer <laughs> to people than they that would have been nice. if they'd moved yeah. into the center of the room. Um, but it's just because they wanted their backs to the wall or or to be uh, sitting alone rather than on a big table where they would have been genuinely sat alone because no one wanted to sit there. It was very, again, irrational. People are really irrational. It doesn't They haven't like thought that through. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really hard to be truly random. You'd have to like flip a coin before you um, take your penalty kick if you want to be random or before every jujitsu match. You'd have to be like, hold on. Just before you take me down, let me just like flip this coin. Or, but them automations like, come with knowledge, don't they? Like with jujitsu, if you do, you you do. If somebody does X, you do Y every single time because you know that the Y is like on a balance of probability is gonna win. Yeah, and you just have to sort of balance in whether or not you're good at that element of it as well. It's like oh, I know this is a good defense, but I'm shit at it, so I'm probably just gonna get battered if I do that. So I should, you know. That's what I was talking about earlier. Um, the prisoner's dilemma. I like this part. We talked about it a little earlier about those two prisoners and trying to get a plea deal. And everyone's seen the. Everyone knows the prisoner's dilemma because everyone's watched a cop show in their life, and it's like yeah. in every single legal or cop drama. Um, yeah, they they get a better deal if. Um, uh, that yeah, you two people you get a better deal if you a perceived better deal if you rat on the other person. But if they rat on you first... I watch one called The Killer's Mistake, and that's kind of always yeah. something that they've done themselves. Um, and, and it's always something to do with some sort of thing they've done themselves that's got them into trouble. And it's... I, no, it's not the same thing. Ignore it. Go on, carry on. Um, but but uh, the, 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 they talk about um, the dominant strategy and the Nash equilibrium. Those are two things that they talk about in the book quite a lot. And in the prisoner's dilemma, the dominant strategy is to rat on the other person because that, you know, any other strategy relies on the action of the other person. So you have to do your dominant strategy, which is, which is telling the police the other person did it um, and giving up the, you know, giving yourselves up, but being the first to do it. But that's not the best result. The best result is neither of you saying anything, which is yep. the Nash equilibrium. And equilibrium is when both of you stick to a strategy and sticking to that strategy is better than any other one. And deviating from that strategy will make you lose, even if it seems like it's kind of in your best interest. Yeah, people mistakenly act in their own best interest. I actually put in one of my notes says this. If you start a gang doing illegal stuff, then you should teach everyone the prisoner's dilemma and make sure they live by it. In other words, keep your trap shut. <laughs> yeah, I think they... they um, I understand why. Yeah, it, it, you just have to rely on the, you know... I've got friends, I'm like, yeah, if I told them beforehand about this, my friends would not betray me. But if I didn't get to communicate with them, 
yep. beforehand about you, it. As, if you're know. going to do stuff that's illegal, you should literally sit down and have this conversation with everybody because the, the only reason I, I, I can imagine that a police officer is asking you specifically to, 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 let's say, rat on your friend or rat on the person that you did the illegal stuff with is because they haven't got anything. If they yeah. had you both banged to rights, they'd be like, I don't even want to speak to you. You're getting yeah, 15 years. Need. See you later. We don't need nothing. Yeah. The only reason they're in that room talking to you is they need something from you. And if they need something from you, then don't give them. Look at us yeah. teaching criminals now. We are. Um, we are. Don't do it. crime, okay? Yeah. Gangs <laughs> use the game of violence and the fact most people act in their own best interest to dominate. Uh, this is kind of what I got from it as well because a lot of criminals do actually they dominate with violence and most people just let them get away with it because they don't want to be hurt. They don't want, whereas not many people will do what you would stand up for themselves. Yeah. And and also I think that plays into the prisoner's dilemma as well. If, uh, that's like a motivation that people can use to stay quiet in that situation uh, in the, in under interrogation is that, yeah, I might, if I rat on the guy, I might get three years and he might get 10. But if I get out in those three years or even those three years in prison because I ratted on the guy, I'm going to get potentially killed, probably killed, probably um, killed. Yeah. By the people around me. So then I'm, then that becomes another element of the equation strategically is that hmm, actually, you know, would it be better to sit in jail for 10 years or get brutally murdered by a gang of people for being a rat? Hmm. It's a tough one, right? So people... Uh... Experienced criminals, I don't think, would, would speak to the police. I mean, experienced criminals, the guys that have been out a long time know that the best thing to do is shut up and not speak. But then if they, 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 because most criminals don't have a long shelf life, um, that they end up working with younger criminals who don't know the strategy behind it, and they're the ones who end up grassing them up and getting the, the long-time criminals put away anyway. So kind of... The odds of staying out is probably not not that good. Right. So maybe you could even think that the realistic long-term game of a career criminal would be to build a um, some kind of, this, I don't know, this is controversial, build a reputation of being a, a good criminal who knows all of the ins and outs of how laws are, are broken and getting away with crimes, and then eventually transitioning to work with the police to stop or just kill Actual everyone criminals. you work with. Okay, yeah, you could just kill everyone you work with. That would be an interesting strategy. That would be a very yeah. uh, Machiavellian style. <laughs> just yeah. do the job, then kill them, keep everything. Next job, kill them, keep everything. And nobody even knows you're a criminal because they're all dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but surely they just look for the only one that's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be any because you killed them. Yeah, well, I mean, you if you're part of that, you know, the police would be like, hmm, all these people are dying. What, what have they got in common? <laughs> they, they've been seen at this address with this guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. This one I liked. I've put price war equals race to bottom equals bankrupt. And then I, this should have been the part of the same one as JV equals uh, joint success, so joint venture. So basically the example they gave us in the... Um, in the book was two petrol stations across the road from one another on a really long road where there's nobody for miles. Um, and what happens is if you're driving down that long road and you see that the two petrol stations on either side, one of them's like a few cents or a few pence cheaper than the other, 
everybody's going to go to that one. So what their best strategy would be is to work together and have a joint price and then share half of the money each. But what most businesses do, which is silly, is they end up getting involved in what's called a price war to try and be the cheapest in the market. And I remember I, I told you about this. When I used to be a locksmith in Manchester, there was a woman um, who used to advertise £50 lock changes. Um, and then people would still ring round for a quotation. And we, I used to say to a customer, if they phoned up and they was like, oh, well, such and such has said they'll do it for £50. And, and she used to advertise it on a website and everything. And my answer always used to be, if I'm spending £50 on a lock, plus I'm putting in labor, plus I'm putting in fuel, then I'm going to come out and do the job at your property. How am I going to make money if I charge you £50 without selling your key to a criminal? And he used to say that to a customer and say, you've got the option to spend £150 on this job, or you can spend £50 with this person and hope they don't sell your key. But I can't see a way that any business can make money charging £50 for doing that particular job. And nearly always they were like, yep, come around and do it. So we were still getting three times the amount for a quick lock change because she was so far cutting it fine to the point where it's like, is it even worth going out to make two quid or whatever she was making? Yeah, and then you have, to, you have to wonder about what their motivation behind that is and how they exactly. can make are that they, work. Are, are they selling the keys? They must have been selling the keys to somebody. Oh, they're importing locks at mass scale from China that are costing them 50p each. And the lock's just going to break as soon as someone tries to yeah. open your door. Not, so. it's, it's not it's not profitable. So it never made sense. But rather than trying to be one of the cheapest in, in the area, we I always went with the strategy. Look, just explain to the customers that if they're as cheap as that, it's probably because they're criminals. Um, so if you want to take that risk with everything that's in your house and your kids and your family and bed and stuff like that, people coming in late at night, knock yourself out. Otherwise, we'll bring a sealed lock <laughs> that's cost us around about £50 and all your keys are sealed in there and you'll see it and we'll do a proper job and you can rest assured uh, in your bed. And then most of the people are like, you know what, we'll play three times the price for that peace of mind. Yeah, every totally. time. Smart, so. good strategy. Good counter strategy to that as well. Kind of social norm as well. You kind of use the social norm with that as well by being like, well, yeah, geez, but she's selling those so so cheap. They're like, oh, she is? Made, yeah, she's selling ridiculously cheap. And they're like, yeah, it oh. Make, it doesn't make sense how you can make money. Let's say you, you spent a tenner in fuel. Let's say you spent 35, 40 quid on a lock. Let's say you've spent how much hourly rate do you want? It just doesn't make sense. Like how do you yeah. drive down all, around all day making money doing that? It doesn't make sense. It's not possible unless she's, she's ripping people off. Somehow. Uh, price agreements can benefit all the price cutting to the win all just drives the market down sorry this was me just putting my notes in and not reading them back <laughs> it's a train of consciousness pricing agreements can benefit everyone and price cutting to win everything just drives the market down is that yes. where you're going with that one that's where i was going with that one price okay. cutting basically drives the market down to the point where nobody wins Everybody yeah. ends up running around like headless chickens for, for pennies, whereas uh, pricing agreements. I used to work at a place that did um, industrial ovens years and years and years ago, um, and they were like hundred to two hundred and fifty grand, and they wouldn't buy leads off anybody. They wouldn't market and promote or advertise, and they all kept the prices up as high as possible. So they were making at least fifty percent clear profit on every single one they sold. But there was five companies in the country that did it, and all five countries the companies none of them tried to undercut each other they all said look the price is the price the price is the same anywhere choose based on value which company yeah. do you want to work with and that was yeah. that worked they all made loads of money they do there's a um 
the tragedy of the commons isn't that like one of the examples they use in the book where they say about the sheep if like a bunch of farmers will try they all want to graze their sheep in the same field so they they they're like yeah we can graze them in the same shield field sorry but each um it's in each farmer's best interest to get as many sheep as possible and to graze them in this field um but if all of them act in their self-interest and fill the field up with sheep they'll eat all of the food and then they'll be like crap now we've got to move our sheep elsewhere now we've got too many sheep so really it's best to um keep if you keep things level without like trying to win all the time um you can you can win by trying not to win yes make, just make an agreement and follow through uh if you win an auction you have nearly always overpaid yeah, I used to buy and sell from the auctions, right? I used to buy and sell all sorts of stuff and flat pack and things like that. And but I'd buy anything. We'll try and buy antiques, TVs, the lot. And we got some amazing deals, but that wasn't because. So the guys who did it as hobbyists used to turn up. So there, there was like 10 of us that used to go to this auction house who were all doing this and making loads and loads of money, right? Mm -hmm. And then there was the hobbyists that turn up. So let's say 60 people turned up to this auction house every single week. And we were the guys that, that, that they did it for a living. They were the guys that had jobs and then come and spend the money on a weekend because they wanted to be entrepreneurs. And we'd all sit at the back and be like, right, I'm having this. You have that. You have that. None of us would bid each other up, right? We'd all keep each other. But what we would do <laughs> is the hobbyists would come in and they would overpay because we'd be like, hand up <laughs> at the back, bidding oh, them no. up. Um, and we did it purposely because we didn't want them to keep coming back. We wanted them to just turn up, buy some right. of it, and then when they, when they buy it and they're like, oh my God, I've not checked it proper. This doesn't work or it's broke or they go back to the auction house and say, oh, I've just bought this TV, but it's not working. It's like, yeah, it's an auction. <laughs> Sold the scene, mate. Get out. Um, and that's kind of, so, so, but, but the guys yeah. who- So you created a monopoly. The guys who was making a living from the auction houses, we did it at about four or five different auction houses, but there was a lot of us that turn up. And as soon as one of us is like, yeah, I want that, the rest of the guys had said, right, I won't go at it. You put your hand up to me. And then every now and again, the 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 summit special had come in um and we'd all we'd all be like you know what gloves are off guys we all want it every man for himself um, yeah i i was like out with musical instruments if any really expensive musical instruments used to come in i always used to get them um even if they were overpriced i'd sometimes i'd overpay and i don't know why but i had i bought tons of guitars bass guitars um these mad things that you blow and stuff i didn't even know what they were but i used to buy them and i'd always make money off them um, because as a private sale, you can you can create a story around an an item that you're selling, especially a musical instrument, and people mm. will overpay for it because of its story, not because of what it is. Ah, that's clever. That's very clever. So I, like I used to love musical instruments. I used to buy loads of them. But but flat pack was my main earner. I used to buy all the all the pallets of flat pack. I had two guys down at steel containers. In fact, I'll tell you about it because it was a cool business. Um, I had two, two steel containers. There are two guys down there that just used to build flat pack all day. I used to drive a massive, big 21-foot uh, van with like a, a big, massive box on the bottom back that had a, like, it was a 14-inch gap from the floor, so you could walk in with furniture. I'd pull wow, okay. up. They'd fill my van, and then I started off by going to all the second-hand shops um, around Oldham, and I used to pull up outside, and I'd, I'd go in, and I'd say, right, um, have you got any space in your shop for anything? And if the guy said to me, yeah, yeah, I've got gaps over here, I'd say, right, I want this much for this the, the, this stuff in my car. So go in, have a look. I'll tell you exactly what I want for it. You sell it for whatever you want, and, not, and then I'll come back and collect the money off you next week, right? So what I started doing is I would ship, I would turn up outside the shops, fill all the gaps in his shops, so we end up with loads of brand new furniture in his second-hand shop. 
Mm-hmm. He'd sell it for whatever he wanted. I'd come back and collect my cut afterwards. So there was, there was no paying me up front. And it, by the time I stopped doing that business, it was doing well. I had about five second hand shops around Oldham that I used to turn up and, and their shops were completely full of my stuff, like loads <laughs> and loads. And don't get me wrong, a few of them were, would, would you turn up the, the first time you do it, you'd leave a couple of things and they wouldn't pay. So you'd like never go back or you'd go back and, and they're like, oh, well, I just sort the money out the end of the week, but you can fill these gaps. You're like, fuck off. But then you end up, I ended up with five of these guys and the shops were completely full. And I had the flat pack guys just building it from the auctions. If it was in good kit, Nick, turn up at the second hand shop, place everything in the room, turn up at the end of the week, Right, that, 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 and that's gone. You owe me 500 quid. Boom, here's a load more stuff. Chuck that in. And we did that. And it was a great business. It was good because, I, but, but I had to drive a big, stupid van all the time because I had to drive a big, stupid van because it was, it was constantly full of uh, built up flat pack. And the yeah. guys who worked down the yard only got paid on what they built. So they build it. But some of these pieces of furniture, you, you, you'd put them together and it's like, oh my God, I can get 300 quid for this. And it's on, on a pallet that it cost you like, 20 quid 30 quid and there was six yeah. other items on there it was sometimes it was, it was huge profit um, yeah and you basically had those shops working as like distribution uh, networks i just wanted yeah. distribution i couldn't sell them myself you could sell them on the internet but it was like just just starting ebay and delivery was impossible so i just i chat it was i took it on an off chance i drove to a place a place called can't remember it was on on Lee's new road. Uh, no, no, it was on Rippenham Road in Oldham. There's a second hand shop at the top, and I pulled up there, jumps out, and I starts chatting to the guy and said, "You got any space in your shop where I can put the stuff?" And he said, "Yeah." And he never ended up doing it long term because he was a knobhead, right? But <laughs> um, he was the first one, and and I put some stuff in his shop, um, and the first few bits sold, and I got the money, and I did it again, and then and then when I came out, the skin, and then he started getting a bit dodgy, getting the money off him. So I thought he's not even worth messing with. And the things had cost me four or five quid a piece, so I wasn't gonna start putting his windows through and all that for a couple of quid. So I went to all different ones, but I took it as an off chance and it turned into a proper cool business. And it made yeah. me realize you can do that with any business, any any customer facing business. If you're willing to turn up, put stuff in their shop and not get paid until afterwards. So it's like, as it sells, then you pay me. Uh, th- these businesses will, will fall over themselves to do a business because most of them are, I'd love to have like lots of different stuff in the shop that they can sell. They just don't because they're cash strapped. And they can't buy it. Yeah, yes. they can't buy it. And you you can't afford the rent on a shop and the risk of having rent on a shop. And you end up basically... You work all day. <laughs> no, true. And and you also have... Uh, you basically created a network of franchisees. It's a bit like uh, um, McDonald's, you know, like, well, you can buy this business and turn it into a McDonald's and we'll give you all the stuff to set it up as a McDonald's. Uh, that's how like the franchisee ones work. Back in the day, franchisee McDonald's were the best because you could go in and ask for crazy stuff. You could be like they go off menu for you because they they weren't like Mate, it's real like, it's McDonald's. Like my, my brother's got a tattoo shop. If I turned up at my if I, if I turned up at my brother's tattoo shop, right? Say I just spent ten grand and imported a load of stuff from China to do with tattoos, all different sorts of stuff and little tattoo guns and all this stuff. And I turned up and I said to him like, they cost me a fiver each. I want twenty five quid a gun. He could sell them in his shop, no problem, for hundred quid each. Make seventy five quid each. And if I'm not super greedy. I could have 50 different tattoo shops selling my tattoo. I mean, that's where, where a lot of people is like, oh, what am I going to do for a business? It's like, well, there's, there's there's hairdressers and salons on every single corner. There's barbers on every single corner. There's the, the shops that there's loads of that don't have any other way of generating an income. You could literally turn up to those shops and it's like, look, if I've got this, will you sell it? And you don't have to pay me until after it's sold. And those businesses are going to go, I'm in. If I'm going to make an extra, if, if somebody comes in to get a, get a tattoo and he spent 65 quid on a tattoo and then they buy a tattoo gun that's X, Y, Z, or that's probably a bad example because you don't want loads of tattooists running around. 
but the type of things that you could actually sell. If you if you spend an hour thinking about this, there's so many business opportunities that people miss. Yeah, so that's many. True. I'll never be poor anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. This is a good one. Mike, on an unrelated matter, I wanted to watch your SEO webinar last night and I missed it. Is there going to be a replay? I have no idea, Alden. Sorry, bud. Um, I don't know. Uh, support at mikemartin.zendesk.com. <laughs> on a different subject, I thought I may as well share it. Um, right. Uh, greed versus altruism. We talked about that a little bit um, earlier about sort of like paying up front for the things like if you're... you you're not being greedy with it you're willing to take the money afterwards um uh, you know that that's a that's a good a good strategy well greed versus altruism in, in the book they give a, a good example of where people are given um a certain amount of money and they have to divide it yep um and they there was the, the one that i that really drew my attention was the um the one when one is a dictator and they they get given the money and they're told that they have to divide it amongst the group um, and they can divide it in any way that they choose with the group. Um, and most, you know, people, I think you talk about it later, people kind of try to be fair when, they, when they're dividing things. Um, and they found that, I thought this was really interesting, is they found that it was more likely if rather than giving taking 90 and giving 10% to the other person or keeping nine pounds and giving one pound to the other person, they would counter the, the people, the researchers in charge would do an almost like a counter offer where they would say, or you give us $1, you keep the nine and we don't tell anyone else that they were in an experiment. People were more likely to choose that option than to give another person $1 or one pound and walk away with the nine for the, just because they would look stingy because they split it 90, 10, you know? So um, I thought that was really, really interesting how like uh, people often say, don't they about like billionaires or whatever, like, Oh, they only gave, they, they gave this amount away to charity that year. Or I know a lot of it's just to do with avoiding tax, but they gave th this amount away to charity, but they're so rich. They could afford to like solve world hunger. And the other point of looking, well, other way of looking at it is they're so rich that if they wanted to hide how much they're giving away from you and not give any away and keep their wealth all to themselves, that they very easily could, but they still haven't. So they're being altruistic, even though it's just a tiny bit. Um, whereas the people who were given that the $10 and decided we'll give you a, we'll give you a dollar and we won't tell anyone you're an experiment so I can keep it. They were just being greedy. So it's it interesting of that, you know, before people look at just a small amount as being, giving away a small amount as being kind of greedy, but it's actually not when you think about it. What they also found is, because I put a note on that one, $100, who gets what, right? So basically, if someone gives you $100, like if you've got somebody doing a job with you, right? So let's say you grab somebody and you say to me, I just want to come and do a day's work, right? For mm -hmm. This is a good example in a real world. Um, um, and you're going to get 250 quid for the day's work, right? A lot of people would be like, all right, well, I'll split it 50-50. But what they proved is that, that, that if you were being completely selfish, you could sp split it 99-10, but obviously the person is going to be super pissed off with you. Um, but how much will they just say so it sticks? It said they basically figured out that anything over 
20%. So the 80-20 rule again, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, the thing is in everything in life, apparently. Um, but the 80-20 rule that is if you give them over 20%, they'll actually walk away happy. So if you was to do a job that you're making 250 quid for, and then you was to turn around and say, here's £62.50, which is 25%, I think, um, of the 250 quid. Um, you're the numbers then, guy. <laughs> I am usually, yeah. Uh, but if you was to turn around and give them £62.50, quid, uh, then they'd, be, they'd walk away happy like, wow, I've made 60, just over 60 quid today for this day's work. I wasn't going to do anything previously, even though you've gone off and made um, three quarters. So what? What? yeah, they kind of basically found that anything under 20%, and that person will go away unhappy, um mm. and they would rather tell you to stick it basically um yes you know what, keep it, fucking keep your money i don't want it that's an insult the ticket is an insult which is my next note is anger at low offers return of the chimp <laughs> it's uh i thought this part was uh super i thought this part was super interesting because when you when you think about it it's like being given free money in that those examples they were literally being handed free money yeah. um uh, surely the smart thing to do is to take the free money, but because the the offers were low, they were offended, and they just walk away. and And I, they did a a study, and they found that people Eagle with high, the enemy. yes, they found people with higher testosterone were more likely to refuse low offers, which yeah. I thought was quite interesting. Like people with higher testosterone were more likely to be angry and to say like, "No, screw it." Uh, and I didn't even and, remember that bit. I must have just missed that bit. Yeah, no, well, it stood out to me because as soon as I heard, why are people? You know what I'm like. I, I like always want to think about like human evolution and why are we doing these things? Like, why would you turn down free money? And I think the the internal thing is like we were talking about in the school. Like, if you let one guy say like, you know, uh, you're a little prick or something, within like a week, that could turn into like physical violence so you respond by being like no fuck you and get you know get nasty with the guy and set the precedent yeah if you get lowballed and you're happy to be like well okay well i'll take i'll I'll take the one quid then the next time it comes around the next time that comes around people are going to treat you like a mug because you did you you took the lowball offer rather than they're never going to cut you in fairly now so you made like, yourself a mug. It's your own fault. So you can't, yeah, you made yourself. And I think that that's why I wrote Return of the Chimp is because that anger at low offers is your chimp protecting you, even yeah. though the human yeah. would be like free money. The, the chimp is protecting you by saying, like, hold on a second. <laughs> like, these people around you are going to fuck you over if you do this. Um, I, <laughs> we, I was in Germany on this German exchange when I was a kid. And I uh, was we were at an arcade or something and we ended up getting loads and loads of, um, of cents. We would spend all our euros and we just had loads and loads of cents. And, um, we were walking along and there was this German guy. He must've been around our age. And he was, he was like, we, we joked in the, in looking back at it, that he was like a little German chav. He was kind of like dressed like an English chav, but German, it was quite weird. And, uh, we gave, um, one of the guys in our group was just being an idiot and he walked up to him and was we, we'd kind of had an interaction before, but nothing serious. He walked up to him and went, would you like a cent? And he like looked at him and he was like, would you like a cent? And the guy was like, what the fuck? No, go fuck yourself. Like, how, how dare you? you? Like, you bitch. And started like kicking my, kicking this guy in our group and like pushing him. And he was like, fuck, I only offered him a cent. Like, and he had such like a violent reaction because he was so offended. That was an insult. Like, this gesture. Really? 
it was an insult. This guy was being a prick. Like he he was trying to be silly and like give the money away. He hadn't thought about what he was actually. He didn't look at what his actions were saying. And yeah. this kid like went to walk away, and he booted he like booted our like bag of stuff that we won from the arcade or whatever, and then walked away. And we were all pissing ourselves. We were like, that was so funny. I can't believe you made that kid angry by offering him a cent. And then we looked up to the top of the, we were walking up this hill. We were in Cologne, the city Cologne. We walked, we were walking up a hill in the, in the city and the Christmas market was right behind us. And, uh, we looked at the top and it was like that scene in the Lion King when all the wildebeest like line up, he sees the wildebeest in the distance. They're all running down the ravine towards them. And this kid had just walked up the hill away from us, yelling abuse at us. And then suddenly we see all of these other German chavs appear on the top of the, of the crest of the hill. And we're like, I think they, they look like they're friends with that guy. And then we see the guy and he's pointing at us and shouting yeah. something. And we we're all wrong. looked at each other and we're like, Oh, we're fucked. We got to go. So we just (laughs) and started running. And there was twenty of them. I'm not kidding. There was probably about six of us in this group. Three of us were three of us were girls. It wasn't like a we weren't we weren't squatted up to to deal with this situation. So uh, we all just started running away, and we were running through the Christmas market. And it was like a a scene out of like a cartoon that people were handing over like ornate clocks in this Christmas market. We were like ducking under them, like carpets and stuff, and like people. um, Did you get caught? Well, we running along, and and I was just like, we need to we need to hide. We need to go into a place that these people just aren't going to look at. So I, one of the girls, her strategy, talking about strategy, we'll, we'll, we'll go there, was to just stand completely still and not run. And all of them ran past her, which smart strategy. She was a girl, so she could get away with that because they, yeah, they? they weren't trying to touch a girl. But if the girl was running and putting up a bit of a, you know, putting up a bit of a fight, she might end up like getting in trouble too. So this girl standing still was a good strategy. Uh, the rest of us run around the corner and I'm like, oh, looking for a place to go. And I point, I see a library and I'm like, we should go in there. Like hundred percent library is a better place than a shop because they, they won't see us. It's like dimly lit. We'll be able to just disappear in the library, hide behind, behind a bookshelf. We run into this library and then as we run in, we watch them all run past the window and we'd like given them the slip. It was perfect. And we were like, pissing ourselves laughing like really high on adrenaline and then we turn around and the librarians just stood there <laughs> she's like Shh, like this and one of the girls goes no we're english <laughs> as you if know she what, was though, like, mate, if them 20 guys had caught you they would have beat the living shit out of you yes they, they would have seriously hospitalized yeah we were just little country boys we were like 13 yeah and he took it really badly and that that's like yeah lowballing someone <laughs> even if you're giving away free money you might get your ass kicked for it i thought it was funny that moves you on to this one when should you take risks probably not when it's to do with being in a foreign country and you're taking the piss out of the locals <laughs> yeah definitely that is uh not something you should ever do um yeah I, I just thought it was an interesting point of like when when should you take risks with this stuff because obviously it, taking the free money is a bit of a risk because you might get screwed over in the future. But then, you know, if you turn down free money every time, something, you know, you, you should be taking a risk at some point with something. And um, I was just interested in, in really what you thought about when it comes to like strategizing, working with other people, especially like, do you ever take a risk on working with someone or do you always try and like, 
is there any way that you minimize the risk? Because obviously when I just like, when I want to work with people or stuff, there's not really any financial, like I'm not really doing anything businessy to get like financially involved. It's normally like I'd get screwed over if I wanted to go on a trip with someone and I was like, yeah, he can come along and then he doesn't pay. And it kind of fucks me over that way, but it's not that big of a deal. But I thought like, you know, you have like a sort of a network of people that you work with. Is there, is there any way that you like sort of discern who to take a risk on and who not to? If if I had to spend time, my own personal time, then I would want to be working with somebody that I trusted. Um, mm-hmm. If it was a business idea that had customers and for them to flake out would actually affect the customer, and, and I'm talking from experience here, but for them to, 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 to if I, if, if, I knew they were untrustworthy. So I would work with somebody on a business idea if they were untrustworthy, but I knew that the only person that could lose out was me. As long as I didn't have to invest any time or effort into the actual thing and it was just a financial thing that it's like, so, so there was good return on investment. So, so, so if I looked at it and I thought, you know what, there's a good chance that I'm going to make five or six times my investment here, then I would likely get involved. But if I was getting involved and there was likely a number of people that could lose out from me doing this business idea like clients, customers, people who've, who've, who've subscribed, then I, I definitely wouldn't take the risk. I'm very, I, I don't mind taking risks, especially when it comes to just financial risks, because okay. I've never really cared that much about money. But as I'm getting older, I'm starting to look at things in a way that if, if I was going to take a risk, I would only take the risk if there's no third party casualties. So people are also going to have to invest. Like um, the, the Paul Brothers has just done something recently. Um, what's his name? Not, not, not Jake, the other one. Logan, Logan Paul. Logan Paul. He, he released that, some. Was that, that ZooCoin thing he did? Yeah, people invested absolutely millions. He was backing it. He was telling people it was going to be, it was yeah. going to be better than fucking. It was NFT gold, and it was going to be it's better NFT than NFT and crypto gold. comes together, and yeah, and he's rich meets Pokemon. Thousands and thousands of people, like for the life savings, because they trusted him, and he com- and he completely has just walked away, and it looks as though he's walked away completely scot free, which I think is, yeah, is absolutely he- terrible. He blamed his business partners, didn't he? He was just like, yeah, I, I got told that this game was going to get made and I like delegated it to other people because I don't have the ability to make the game. And then they ended up like stealing my well, money and then rug pulling me. And it, uh, Whether that's happened and he's been naive, I don't know because he's never run a real, real business. That the only bit, And I mean, I know he has Prime now, so he's making shitloads of money. But he yeah. could afford to, if, if he gave a shit about his reputation, he could afford to um, put that right. Like I think he would developers and put that right. I think strategically he would have ended up in a better place by the trust is lost in the product now. So he also knows that the trust is lost in the product. So even if I fix it for the people that are bought into it, no one's ever it's never going to be valuable anymore because the trust is lost because of all the bad press online. So he maybe and, he's thought, I'm just gonna take a cut and, and 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 run. And if he's not that if he's not that um financially invested, whatever, but I don't think money is that much of an issue to that guy. I think he makes ridiculous money. I think it's more about uh, like his attention span. He's not the type of person that's like, well, I could put this right, and then in you know two years, it might end up becoming like start to become profitable again, and people you know will be happy with it, and the reputation will grow again. But it will be a long project. He doesn't have the energy. He doesn't have the the mental energy for that kind of stuff. He's doing so many different projects. He just doesn't give a shit. So. Also, on the term of taking a risk, like when you invest in something, obviously you're you're taking a risk, and you have to make sure that someone's trustworthy. Logan Paul, <laughs> I'm not sure whether like he had 
he had prestige of like his his name and trying to like you know like be uh if he wanted to get into crypto he doesn't want to come out as looking bad or uncool or like he doesn't know what he's doing so you can kind of bet against him doing something stupid like that but if you know anything about him you just be like well this guy's a moron so why would i trust him like to invest in that i don't know it's not something i would have done personally but i don't clearly some people thought that he turned a corner and, and had changed but bef- he got famous mostly from like filming a dead guy in a suicide forest in japan right so did he? I don't know. I don't know how he got famous. I know that, that I know the people used to say Jake Jake Paul Jake Paul was famous for being Logan Paul's brother, but now yeah. he's kind of overtaken, hasn't he? Because he's doing all these fights and stuff. And yeah, Logan was kind of like he was infamous. I think he tried to get famous and got infamous on the way. Him trying to be famous is what sort of made him infamous. It, it kind of like it worked because he got famous, but he, his reputation was like not good. Like he have masses of viewers on his videos about like being colorblind and getting his vision back and stuff. And it was all just bollocks. He was never colorblind. And like, you could watch the video and kind of tell you're like, well, I'm not stupid enough to think he's just acting really badly with these glasses. Did you watch the video? Because if you did, that was the whole point was not to actually Mm. prove he was colorblind or not colorblind. It was to get people to watch the video. Yes. So it worked. I watched the video via someone else watching the video like uh, uh on another youtube channel which is just the same thing it just does the same it's thing it's also been shared by word of mouth which means it's just yeah. just as viral mate that's the whole point the point of, of making these videos oh, totally to make sense it's to get eyeballs on them yeah and it's like, like you were saying about like you don't mind about taking the hit if it's just financial but if it's an ethical hit where other people have to take the hit and it feels you know yeah. that's an ethical issue I you would feel bad about that. that a few years ago i partnered up with a guy who was a piece of shit um ah. and he, he basically was was doing all sorts of stuff behind the scenes so that the developers weren't working on the project eventually i found someone who could partner up with him and rather than selling my half in the project i gave it away um because i couldn't work with the guy because he was a liar um and i think the project is still being worked on by that person but he's ended up buying him out to get rid of him um but it was just it was a big mistake and when it comes to working with people now going forward i would never work with somebody who i didn't 100 trust if that was a project that was going to have customers and those customers was going to be using that project for their business um so rather than actually trying to make financial gains to make this thing right because trying to get him out of the project was impossible for me because he was just being a knob about it. Mm. So instead I, I basically said, you know what, I'm going to give my half of this project to somebody else who you can work with. Um, but I, I, I don't know how far that's gone or not gone because I know that he's, it was, it was, he had a cash grab mentality. Like as soon as he made any money out of any of the projects, he went and bought himself a new fucking car or something stupid. And it's like, you're supposed to be making the money to reinvest back into the project to help yeah. the customers to grow the overall. And it was like, it was a mistake, but you make those mistakes when you're young in your business. Yeah, it was, it was like, and, and, and it took me ages to try and figure out how I could actually get out of that situation without, and 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 trying to grow the, the, the product wasn't an option because every time anything came in, he was, it was just, it was, it was an impossible, but I believe the product is now working and doing well. And, 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 and the new guy that I gave my half to ended up buying his half out and now he's working on it and pushing it forward. So it didn't end up completely bad, but it was impossible for me to stay involved in the project because the relationship broke down because he was a complete liar. 
Yeah, and you would have, you don't want to stake your reputation on someone that you don't trust. It was just a complete like, liar. It was like he was we, we were saying, right, we need to work on this, 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 and this to get this to this point. And then he was getting them to do backdoor, the developers to do backdoor jobs for him. And then he was reselling that in a different, up the, it, was, it was just, it was just a con man. It's just some yeah. people are like that. Um, yeah, they're out there. They're also an experiment where they give chimps some sweets or peanuts or something and they're happy with it, but as soon as they give one chimp two pieces, the other one goes crazy and won't accept his share unless he gets two as well. Yes, they, chimps. The, yeah, chimps are really interesting for this experience, uh, this experiment. Alden, I'm not sure. Alden, have you ever heard of the one where the guy, it was like a, a zookeeper, and it was one of the chimps' birthdays, and he goes into the, the chimp enclosure with a birthday cake for one of the chimps. Like, uh, this just kind of shows like the cultural, well, the species difference in this case, but the cultural differences and how they have an effect on this kind of like uh, um, uh, generosity and, and um, fairness. So he goes in with this cake with the candles on for this chimp. Happy birthday. He gives it to the chimp. And the other chimps are like, what the hell? Why are you giving that chimp stuff and not us? And they freak out and just rip the guy apart and just killed him. I think that that actually happened. I'm not sure whether it's a myth, but this experiment you talked about there, Alden, does sound a little bit like that. So maybe someone was getting a bit excited with that. Imps are not the type of animals that get bullied then, are they? Because they're like, fuck you. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah. They, I mean, some of them are. That's the crazy thing is that just like humans, some chimps are just like, they don't have a lot of dominance. So they just get Timid. kind of they're pushed to the side. And you, you prob timidity normally comes from being outgoing in the first place and then getting knocked back. So if you're a male chimp that get, keeps getting knocked back every time you're going for trying to like mate with females or whatever, you're probably just going to end up really timid. And that's why, and then your, your, um, your genetics aren't going to pass to the next generation of chimps. So that means that the most sort of like, you know, bolshy in your face, brave chimps that don't like getting, you know, the ones that are going to say, no, fuck you. Don't give me that much. I want more. Are more likely to get into the gene pool. So I guess that that's how it works. But with humans, many entrepreneurs in it, it's the same thing. Entrepreneurs get knocked back, knocked back, knocked back. And, and the people who are not genuinely, actually risk averse, um, who like to think everything through first, don't become successful as entrepreneurs because as soon as they get that knockback, it makes them a little bit less risky and a little bit less and a little bit less. And all of a sudden, it's like they, they just lose it. They just, yeah. Well, they they say that that's one of the arguments towards, I don't know whether this is true or not. I, I'm sure there's research into it. I think the the fact of women being slightly less risk averse, uh, sorry, more risk averse than men is, is true. Um, but I don't know whether it actually has this effect, but they think that that's why there are less women like CEOs and, and stuff is because more or less risk averse than sorry I've kind of fucked that up. They're more, they're more averse to risk. They do not want to take risks as much as men. Seriously. Apparently so. But that makes sense genetically because w women are really, really important, <laughs> like super important. And men are kind of a little more expendable. Like, you know, women. We run women, around fighting and fucking, and women build families and grow. Yeah. Families. Like, uh, if, if you, yeah, like a, a woman can look after a child on her own, but before like formularized milk and stuff, a man would really struggle. So. It, it a man makes... still struggle now. How many single? And, and I'm not saying anything bad about the decent single dads out there, but there is fucking almost none. Like yeah. most most single parents are women, and they do an amazing job. Most single dads are terrible at it. Yeah, well, I, 
dads generally weekend dads are not nowhere near as good as it are the mums we just we're just not built that way if i split up with my missus i know for a fact i would definitely let her keep the kids and i would look after the family financially and i'd visit them as much as i could because i just know that they'd get a better life she could give them things that you love. couldn't necessarily yeah no i love my kids you know what i mean i mean like (laughs) last night i took both my kids to the beach and we went on the thing and we went chasing crabs and doing all but that's a dad job in it it's not like a okay now you've got to come home you've got to wash and and shower because you've just been in the dirty water in the sea then you've got to brush your teeth and go to bed i've got to make sure you have your stomach full before you go to sleep at night and all the rest of that it's just it just doesn't even cross a man's mind in most occasions it's like if you're hungry go in the kitchen um and yeah. and, and i guess that's why if i was to if i was to ever split with my missus and and, and and i hope i never do but if i ever did i think i would make sure that she was financially set and I'd pay for the home for them to be in it and then she could just do what she's really good at which is be a mother um yeah because i i don't think i could do it and i don't think i, I think i don't think many men i think it's can. like nur- nurturing instincts and stuff like that so, People, some people have more like nurturing nest building instincts than others. Like it, 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 there's very, there's variation of that in male and female anyway. Uh, like within males, there are some men that are really nurturing and there are some men that are just not nurturing at all. And it's the same in women, but it's more in general, it's more women are more sort of nurturing and because that's kind of that that's been their role historically for many many years and and genetically i mean that makes sense it's like we were talking about fat earlier right how like uh where where people put fat on in their bodies and i was saying like fat goes straight to like my sort of love handles at the back and like you can most guys want fat to go to their arms so even if they're putting on weight they just want their arms to look bigger whereas Girls get it on their arms, their legs, and their asses quite a lot. And but also the main thing that happens with women is they get it on their stomach. Yeah, but I, really. I growing up, I would get fat on my stomach when I was younger, when I was like in my twenties. As I've got older, as I've started to get into my forties, I get I, if I put put more weight on, I put it on my stomach, my tits, and my ass. So <laughs> I'm kind of turning into a woman as I'm getting older. <laughs> so um, it's like how how has that happened? Where, where is it never used to happen at all? I always used to put it on one spot, and as I've got older, it's changed. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? But like, fact, with... when I was skinny, I still had a double chin. <laughs> so it's just you're just born with genetic it. double chin. Maybe he's born with it. <laughs> um, yeah, but they say like the women get get, get uh, they have a higher percentage of fat on their stomachs. Even like skinny women, or women with low body fat percentages, will have like a little more fat on their stomach because it's just a protective layer to protect their extremely vital child making organs like their their womb and stuff like that needs to be protected by a little extra sort of fat so lots of girls are like oh my stomach i don't like the way my stomach like folds when i bend it and stuff it's like no it's perfectly natural and most guys if guys are like switched on and like young guys looking looking for girls and stuff they'll probably find that quite attractive uh i I know i i kind of do so uh it's just like like, no but I think that, um, but like a girl's stomach is attractive to me. Like, it, oh, right, okay. It, it, not I like I don't mean like about it, me. I don't mean not like really. a fat stomach is attractive to me. Like, it, but if the stomach, if the girl's like, oh, I'm a little self conscious about my stomach. Normally, it's like, well, you shouldn't be because I actually like it's kind of hot because in guys are like looking at it from a like that shows that girls are fertile because they they're protecting those organs, which means those organs work. Because why protect organs that don't work? So it's like it's why guys like women with big tits and big asses. It just shows that they're like able to have. They've got wide hips, so they can have 
babies without dying and they've got big boobs it means that they can feed loads of children it's all like genetic that's why girls like guys that are like big like he can protect me if someone comes to town and tries to steal all our stuff but it's just like a um, historically yeah it's like a genetic thing attraction is there's a psychological element to attraction but the physical elements are quite like chimpy (laughs) you know what i mean they're like base instincts talking about chimps um Alden's talking about testosterone and stuff. Uh, Alden says, I guess testosterone is to blame there. More testosterone means more risk-taking. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, I saw a thing that said that uh, risk-taking is um, it's, you're more likely to take, men are more likely to take risks when they're under stress, whereas women are less likely to take risks when they're under stress, which I assume is testosterone because when you're stressed, your hormone levels are going to get strange and you're more, that's why like, um, I think that that's where this, this idea of like being on a skid or like we, we'd say in gaming, we call it tilting. So the more like angry and stressed out you get, the more likely you are to fuck up. And I think it's because like you get angry and stressed, you start taking random risks that you, if you were thinking clearly, you wouldn't take those risks. Uh, and in sport, you see it all the time when fighters get angry they stick their chin up in the air. They're pissed, so they drop their hands, and they're like, oh, I really want to hit you, so they drop their hands and expose themselves, and they take a massive risk to hit the other person hard enough to get that, you know, to get that little point back or whatever. They, Boy, they've is, exposed themselves. Does that mean you have a testosterone boost? I thought, is there not just a certain amount of testosterone in your body? Or does it go up and down? Uh, yeah, it, it, it fluctuates. It definitely fluctuates. I, I don't know whether the, the net amount, I'm not 100% on this stuff because I didn't do particularly well. At science. I got interested in science when I was a bit older and I didn't really learn about a lot of it in school. So I, there's massive gaps in my knowledge. But I know that testosterone, your testosterone can be lower um, Like if you do a certain, if you're, you're really tired, your testosterone isn't particularly high, things like that. I find that I can tell where my testosterone is by waking up and whether or not I enjoy the feeling of working out because I know if my testosterone is high, I'm like the feeling of working out is great. Like I love the feeling of it. It's like, this is brilliant. But if I'm not, um, if my testosterone is kind of low or not very high that day, or maybe I'm stressed or maybe I'm ill or maybe something like that, it feels like shit. And I'm like, Oh, what's the point? Why am I doing this? Like it just Mine's doesn't feel based on If I have a cup of coffee or not, if I have a cup of, we have red and blue coffee in our house. One of them's got caffeine. and One hasn't. If I have a blue coffee and go to the gym, I notice. So, so I got, I was telling you before, I've got it down to three miles in eight minutes and 27 seconds on the exercise bike. Right. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have a cup of coffee, I struggle to get it under nine minutes. Wow. That's fine. So that's just the different. Uh, that's me caffeine levels. Yeah. I guess pre-workout, people take pre-workout, don't they? And it's kind of the same thing. Um, anyway, Georgia says, how many books can you link back to in this episode? That can, that what you're just talking about, that could easily link back to Sapiens. Yeah, true. We've been all around the houses on this one a bunch, haven't we? Like, um, but I think that's because game theory and the art of strategy is like quite a, strategy is one of those things that just like it kind of bleeds into everything it's really hard to find an example where there's just no strategy because even when you know even when even not using a strategy is a strategy so it's one of those like paradox things you put it in everything um yeah 
Dominated strategy. Styles make fights. We've talked about that already, haven't we? We did talk about that. Styles making fights. I was very in love and war. Yeah. This is you. Yeah, I put this because I thought it would be interesting to talk about um, strategy and how it relates to um, relationships and also how it relates to like actual war, like killing people war, not just fighting in a controlled circumstance. Because I think that that's places where the game theory kind of can't, it needs more of a psychological edge to it. You know how predictably irrational had like quite a psychological. I think war is won by the emotionless. Ooh. If you don't have any emotion involved, then your strategy will always be based on what's the outcome for me. And, and, okay. and, I think you could apply that to 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 relationships as well. I think if you're emotionless, you can you can trick because you don't mind what you say, you don't mind what lies you tell, you don't mind. Yeah. So if you if you was completely emotionless in in love or in war, I think that that gives you a huge advantage in getting the outcome that you want, even though most people won't because they feel bad about being dishonest. Well, that's like the Machiavellian way of looking at it, isn't it? Because like that's how that advantage is made is because you're not hampered by feeling emotions or what other people think. So you kind of break the rules. And that's kind of what this means. Like all, all's fair in love and war. It kind of, it's like, just do what it takes in any of those situations to get what you want. So if you, if you love someone, you just have to do whatever it takes to, to get to them. And, and a lot of people think about that in a way of like, oh, I love them and they live really far away. So uh, I'll drop everything and travel there. But it's like, yeah, that's one thing. Okay, fair enough. But what about killing someone? Like, would you would you kill someone to to get with someone? Like, what? Where does that? Where's the rule? Where does that end? It's like quite interesting. I, I love probably the... kill someone for someone, but not to get with somebody because you don't you've not got an emotional connection to somebody until you get with them. Have you? So it's kind right, of right. Like... So strategically, it's not worth it to kill someone. Yeah, yeah. If, I'd probably kill someone for someone. I mean, if if someone. If, even if a guy slapped my missus, I'd probably happily stick a knife in his face. <laughs> because Specifically very, the face. But I'm just thinking about it because you're protective over your, your, your family, aren't you? I mean, I guess oh, yeah. that's a man's job. So yeah, that, I mean, then, w- yeah, women are just, would. oh my God, like a mother bear. Like women are crazy protective over there, especially their kids. Um, yeah, so yeah, exactly. Like, I guess that kind of stuff can you can really get like scary reactions out of people when you push them in that way, like messing with people's loved ones. I remember at school, like some kid gets battered, and the, the teacher's just like, "What happened here?" You know, and he goes, "He said something about my mum," and it's like, "No, oh, the mum's off the table, man. <laughs> you don't. You brought his mother into it. You bastard. <laughs> you deserve to get battered." It kind of like I don't know. It changes the dynamic, doesn't it? And now you see it with in school with them. Um, uh, with racism as well like he he he, he said uh he's called me a racist thing so i like beat the shit out of him the teachers must have a horrible job being like uh i don't know what to do in this situation because violence is bad but racism's very bad but violence can also be very bad and oh my god what am i going to do with this situation it's such a minefield right um but yeah also i was going to talk about strategy in um it, this psychological more like psychological strategy there's not quite the same as it's kind of game theory but it's not the same way this was more mathematical i thought it was more like but some things you can't put into math like no, for example you can logically work out if you know somebody you can kind of figure out what their next that move's going to be and then counter it can't you? that's the whole point 
Yeah, but um, for example, uh, Miyamoto Musashi, one of the most famous, um, he was a famous swords duelist in Japan, and he would had many, many little one-on-one -on -one sword duels that would um, that he won all of them allegedly. Um, but his most famous one, he's facing this incredibly good master of, of swordsmanship, and he doesn't think he can beat them. <laughs> I have to read this one. Uh, Lauren says, that's very true. If anyone ever touched my kid, I would strangle them with their own earlobes. That is <laughs> creative, and violent in equal measures. I love it. Um, that's a good advert for not getting ear stretches, just in case <laughs> you don't want to get it choked out. <laughs> it's like Joe Rogan says about not wearing a necktie because he doesn't want to get strangled. Don't stretch your ears or Lauren will strangle you with your lobes. Um, right, what was I saying? Miyamoto Musashi. Yeah, so he, he thought in a 1v1 in the rules of this combat, I am not going to necessarily win. So the best strategy is to change the playing field so he showed up really late and instead of fighting with his swords he fought with the broken oar of the boat that he rode in on um because it the guy couldn't use his sword strategy because he was like this guy's fighting me with an oar it's not a sword it's not the same and uh he showed up really late which was a massively offensive horrible thing and realistically if you did that in Japanese culture at the time, you would probably have to like, I don't know, ritualistically kill yourself in, in, in dishonor. But he showed up late. It was like, no, fuck you. And then just beat the shit out of the guy with a big wooden oar. And it was kind of like, you know, he broke all the rules of the, of the game in order to win because it was his life on the line. And I think that that's the case with, with a lot of like, uh, with like war and battle and stuff. I think it's like, you know, the this burn the boat the thing. Yeah. So like Hernan Cortez burns his boats so that he can go and onto the Mexican mainland and beat the Aztec empire with only like 800 men. He's like, retreat is an option. I've burnt the boats. You have to just perform at your very best now and be loyal to me. And um, that's, you know, huge. And I think um, another example of burning the boats in a metaphorical state was um, Xenophon, the Greek commander. He, when they were setting up their battle against the Persians, he set up his, um, outnumbered force he set them up with their backs against the side of a ravine so there was no retreat like they were literally trapped up against a wall which you'd think is a terrible thing to do with with a battle like statistically that's an awful thing to do but because the psychological element of it was you the human psychology came into it as in they know they can't run they they all they can do is fight um, you just said it. Actions speak louder than words. He stuck his guys against a bit, and it's like you can't run. He yeah, burnt the boats. He's stuck to the water to your back, and it's like, yeah, anyone seeing somebody burn their own boats would be like, oh my god, these guys. Yes, are serious. they're crazy. That's and that's why, like, you find like the the Maori, for example, they do the haka, which is like a battle. It was like a pre-battle sort of thing where they make like crazy faces and they do all the hand gestures and make all those like um that they chant and they like they make like sounds with their, they make like a drum rhythm with their body and stuff. It's like now it can kind of look some people that aren't necessarily super cultured think it's a bit silly. Obviously if you learn about their culture, it's not silly. It's awesome, but um, it can look a bit strange because in modern times, that's really weird. But if you imagine before a battle, <laughs> you've got to line up against these dudes and they're like all like doing all these crazy chants and like pulling all these crazy faces at you. You're like, yeah, I'm going to get smoked. This is awful. <laughs> I don't want to fight them. They're crazy. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that that's um, uh, another sort of strategic 
uh, thing, like you said, about being like over overwhelmingly aggressive is another sort of fighting strategy is just showing, you know, if the person who says, they always say that the person who says, you know, oh, I could knock anyone out. Well, I'm really, you know, I'm really hard. I could, I could do anyone and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a killer. That person is probably the biggest pussy in the room. Nervous. Whereas the guy that isn't saying anything is more likely to be the one that could, could batter you because they're using a strategy the wrong way around, aren't they? Strategy yeah. is a skill to be learned and an art to be practiced. Those guys probably need to stop practicing it the way they're doing it and just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. They, they, How about this they... one? Chop kid in half. I said this before, um, before the podcast, that this is my favorite note you've ever written. (laughs) (laughs) Chop kid in half. Um, Yeah, this is in reference to uh, King Solomon. It's a story from the Bible. um, And it's his, uh, his justice, his decision is that two women um, come to him with one baby and the women are in a dispute over who is the mother of the baby. One woman is like, no, this is my baby, and this other woman has stolen it, and the other woman is saying exactly the from same thing. From the same thing. household. The women are from the same household, and allegedly it's a brothel. Um, Ooh, yeah. Okay, so someone basically is two women. One of them is the child's mother, and one of them is trying to steal the baby, but they're both saying they're the child's mother. So um, they're all waiting for Solomon to make this wise decision to look at the right, you know, to like judge them by like hair color or something like that. But Solomon just says, um, okay, kill the baby, cut it in half, and um, each can have one half of the baby. And um, one woman is like, oh, my God, no, oh, don't do it. And the other woman is like, fine, I'm not the mother, give it to the other woman. No, and that's not just keep works. the baby alive. Uh, one, I of think them, is- one of them says, don't do it, she can keep the baby because I don't want the baby to die. And the other woman says, yeah, yeah chop her in half, we'll have half each. Um, so he gives that the baby. That doesn't make any sense. So why would... says, chop the baby in half, and, and we'll have half each. So, so he obviously understood that the the woman that said chop it in half didn't care about the kid, so it wasn't the child's real mother. And he gave it to the woman who said give the woman give the baby the other to the other woman. Yeah, the woman who said give the baby I, to the other woman. He gave is the, the one that's right. Yeah, of course. But I did, the other one isn't like yeah, chop him in half because that's just nuts. <laughs> of no, course, that's what, that's what it says. If you read really? it in the book, that's exactly what it says. It says, oh, see, says I've put it in half. Nobody, nobody will end up with the kid. But just chop the kid in half, kind of thing. Maybe I've read a, a different translation of it. I just thought because it's a bit more, you know, it's Solomon's choice. Yeah, but I've read the other translations of it, so I knew the story anyway. So I just, but Solomon's decision is more, more intelligent. Yep, based on the I, based yeah. on, yeah, but it's more, more. If the other woman was like chop him in half, you'd be like, what? No mother would ever say that. But a mother could, you would think, realistically, be like, no, please don't. But the other mother is willing to say. Not just no, please don't, but no, please take just give the baby away. Fine, I won't even do it. Like, no, no, it's more no, sacred. The way around, one of the women says, No, please don't, and the other woman can have the baby because I don't want yes. the baby to be harmed. So she's yes. protecting the baby. Absolutely. The other woman says, Yep, chop the kid in half, and none of us will have it. She's happy for him to kill the kid. Oh, that's that's exactly that's what it's in this book. I remember because when I yeah. read it, that's why I put chop the kid in half. I thought, You sick bitch, man, you would have killed that other woman's kid just so that she couldn't have it. Yeah, well, Solomon was was gonna kill that. That, that was like he, yeah. But if he, that was his if, wisdom was to say to chop the kid in half, wasn't it? And the, like the other woman saying, "Okay, chop the kid in half" is just a bit weird. I don't know. Maybe that is how the story goes. I think it's the story's flawed. We were going to talk about that. Is because if if one of the women, if the woman that wasn't the mother had waited for the mother's reaction and then just copied her, 
then the decision would have been impossible. He would have had to have just killed the baby. Like this. Yeah. There's no, it's a no game of chicken. Outcome. Yeah, it, it's a big game of chicken. It's like whoever breaks first <laughs> will be the uh, will be the one who loses. But in this case, it was the one who won. So I've got the one who broke first. That I'm going to show up. Interesting. People like to be fair, even if they don't know the person. Take it into account, which is something that they said is is general. Generally, people like to be fair, even if they don't know the person, and that's why the majority of people gave the hundred dollars. They gave half away. Um, because people yep. just like to be fair. Uh, I thought that was a good quote to put on. And then there was another thing that that, 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 that intrigued me, which was, um, and I never thought of it before until I read it in here. Um, so basically, like the American election system is designed on a, a, a yes-no system. So like, who mm-hmm. do you want to vote for? This one, this one, or this one. But the, the second, the person who wins might not always be the best candidate. And he's trying to say that if they actually swapped it around and created a voting system where people actually, instead of going in and um, voting, yes, just, I just want this one person. If they actually scored them, then yeah. they get a more accurate outcome as to who's the best person to rule the country. Cause this person gets 10 points. This person gets eight, this person gets six. And maybe you could score the top, your top five people right at the beginning. I think he said that if there were 30 candidates, I don't know how it works properly, but when he said it, I thought, Oh my God, that'd be a much better way of actually yeah. doing the voting systems. If people actually were scored. So the, the top and, and, and he, and he mentioned something in there that, uh, about the United States and, straight away it kind of popped into my head that actually during an election they're the divided states because everybody does it on a state-by-state basis and yeah. that enables one person to say right well if i if i win favor in these five or six states i can win an election meaning that they, they can not give a shit about every all the other states which is, is yeah. kind of as as a united states they should really get every single person in the country to vote based on uh give them a number right so so he's our favorite so we give him 10 points eight points six points and and if if they don't get points off you then great and that way they'll figure out who the best person is not for individual states but for the whole country yeah i'm not sure if it's uh i'm not sure if this is how it works in america i think it could be is that because they do it on a state-by-state basis you could have a situation where more people vote for candidate a than candidate b but candidate b wins on the basis that they've done it state by state so realistically you've got over half of the country being like no i don't want this person <laughs> and it's crazy yeah, how something still, like that yeah. has remained in place because he and, also and mentioned it, a keyboard and he says this keyboard here isn't the best keyboard for typing the qwerty keyboard i've got here and it's one called the dsk keyboard which makes it quicker because what they've done is they've, they've put all of the most used keys on one line. Okay. But because the learning, well, this is not what he says in the book, but what I thought, because if you, if, when they went from steam to, 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 to petrol engines, there's no learning curve. It's a case of saying, well, you jump in yeah. the car and you drive it. Whereas yeah. with the keyboard, there's a huge learning curve to become quick at typing. So almost there's a better technology out there than the QWERTY board, which most of us use. But the reason we don't use it is because, there's so many people using the QWERTY and the, the learning the new technologies takes so long in comparison to it, even though it's way, way, way faster for typing that most people don't counteract it. So it, it got me thinking because if we're going to bring out a new technology of something that is 
difficult to use and it's going to be difficult to use ours. It's very difficult to get people to transition to the new software in my, in my, in, which is what we'd be releasing. So what yeah. you always have to do is make sure that when you're trying to transition somebody from something that already works, but it's difficult to use, you have to make it so there's no learning curve for them to learn it. Otherwise they won't take it on big proof. Yeah. Is the keyboard. Definitely. And I think that, uh, the proof as well is if you like reverse engineer habit building and how, like if you make a habit hard, people just yep. stop doing it and yep. it's like I think if you look at a product like if it's difficult or there's any kind of uh any kind of user interface problem it is absolutely damning <laughs> it doesn't even matter how good the end of the end product is it absolutely damns it so making something easy is, i remember uh, buying some accounting software years ago to, to to run one of my businesses and I literally opened it up, set it up on a computer and then realized all the shit I had to do to get it to work. And I was like, fuck that. I ain't doing yeah. that. I'm throwing all of my receipts in a box and I'm passing it to the lady who does me accounts and she can figure that shit out. Yeah, I, I had it with the uh, mobile phones. Like, I was always on like Android or Google and was just like, yeah, this is definitely better. Like Apple, it just doesn't agree with me. I just don't like the way that it, you know, everything interacts. It seems counterintuitive. And then when I moved over, to i i was forced into using uh apple because i was i was given an apple phone for free so i was like oh i've got to use this now so i um i used it and then i was like oh my god no <laughs> it's actually better it's more intuitive that's insane um but yeah it's just that the learning curve made it seem like it wasn't but okay would you recommend this book or did you hate it um so, well, yeah, this is the most complicated way of answering that. I hated this book. Yeah, it was an absolute slog to get through. Painful at times. Uh, it's the first one of the books that we've read that I've had to jump around in. I'm really interested in strategy, especially with like wars and battles and social strategy and stuff like that. But I realized that the side of strategy that I'm interested in is the human psychological side of that strategy and not the yeah. mathematical game theory element of strategy. Um, I learned something from this book. I learned a lot of things from the book, but the main thing I learned from this book is that I need to improve my baseline of mathematics to get a better understanding of just everything, the world that we live in, especially in business. If I want to you know, improve myself in a financial way, I think getting to grips with, with math, getting better to grips with math is probably a good idea, um, or at least being less intimidated by it. Um, I think it also taught me that if you don't regularly practice strategy, you will become not very good at implementing strategy. Like you, you have to, this is gonna, this is good because it's turned my brain on to thinking about um, strategic choices that I'm making. Why am I making these choices? And I think thinking about things more strategically and taking a time thinking about decisions is almost always more positive than not thinking about your strategy and going into it. I thought it was written fairly confusingly structured poorly you need a bit of mathematical knowledge to understand parts of this book um which is a shame because i don't have that knowledge and if you're going to listen to it on an audio version frankly don't bother because listening to the guy explain graphs is going to make your ears bleed um but i would recommend it you just need more time this book is more of like a project to get into yeah. and and to look at as a, a learning experience I found the exact same. It was boring cool. in my fucking head, and it wasn't. Uh, some of the stuff that you learn in there was brilliant logic and 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 how to apply logic and stuff. And then he start talking yeah. about fucking mathematical equations and all the bullshit. And it's like, okay, I don't need to know that it's not point two seven five percent. It's like, 
it's more likely it's less like and, and it kind of went to i think it could have been written in 150 pages and been absolutely brilliant um whereas instead it was written in 600 pages or whatever it was and yeah i think that ruined it it literally dragged it out and made it as thick as the bible when it didn't need to be because it had nowhere near as much content i agree like you could probably sum up the idea of game theory and and with some powerful examples probably in a 10 minute youtube video <laughs> like i'm gonna it, try and do it in one statement go on my final thought says play like a general not a janitor Ooh. okay and that was it and i just used janitor because it was an, it was a good example i could have said a grave digger i could have said any old job that you don't have to actually yeah. think about no, what, see, what it's the alliteration isn't it general and yeah. janitor it's worth it's, it play like a general not a janitor he's literally think about yeah, think think about everybody else's moves, not just yours. Think about everybody else's frame of mind. Think about that how their yep. emotion, because people make decisions emotionally. They don't make so if they're pissed off, they're going to make a different decision. You can't look at someone analytically and say they're going to make this decision because if they're pissed off, they're going to make a different decision than if they're horny or if they're happy or if they're sad. Yeah, and so and you need gonna... to you you need to use your knowledge of human psychology to actually like help make that decision not just numbers um but you don't need a psychology degree to understand humans because you're a human yeah exactly and that's the benefit of it it's like i felt like i needed a math degree to understand this book (laughs) but i don't need you know let me take that down let me show you what we're going to do so next week we have something to do with samurai samurai let's go how exciting the book of samurai the Hagakure, yeah, the Hagakure is the Book of the Samurai. Um, it was written by Yamamoto Tsunetomo originally, but we're reading a translation from a different... Um, so we ain't got uh, a picture of the translation we're reading, so hold the book no, up. No, we've got, the one you've uh, got Alexander Bennett is our, is our translation. So if you wanted to read the exact same version of, as us, you'd want to go with the one by Alexander Bennett. But... I think the other translation, they said they're pretty much the same, but this one is more accurate. Shows how thick that book is. Not as thick as the last one, thankfully. There we go. It is a bit, but I think, I I reckon we're going to find, yeah, look at that though. Look at that. That one was tiny print. It was torture. Hated that book. Oh, it was brutal. But the, um, I think we're going to find that uh, this one goes through, um, maybe there's going to be a few more gaps in it, you know, where there'll be just quotes and things to think about rather than like graphs <laughs> for us to understand. So I'm really looking to the, looking forward to the Hagakure. Uh, I'm a big fan of um, Japanese stuff and definitely samurai fascinate me. I love their Bushido co- code and the warrior culture and stuff. I'm really excited for that. Um, well, I'm looking forward to the week after next, but I'm going to enjoy this one as well. And I That's true. That's going to be a big one. Once you've finished it, I'll probably get Cameron to read it because he's just finished the Almanac. And nice. Just, um, so he's, he's read Ego is the Enemy. Now he's read the Almanac. Um, and he, I've just taken The Obstacle is the Way Home for him the other day. And I've got... Nice. Uh, so I said to him, I'm not going to give you all the books I get for you. Um, I'm going to give them you one at a time and then take them away. So you've only got one book to read it's in your room. That's uh, probably a good idea. So you don't stillness, get stillness is the key. I think he's going to read after this, but I think this one here that we've got now might be a, a favorite for him. So I want to give him some, on. some like some knowledge of understanding before he gets to an age where he's completely converted to a sheep. Like 99% of people are by society, which fucking drives me insane. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, the Almanac, if if they, I don't know, if they put the Almanac 
in, out in schools, I think it would change the world. I think that book is like one of the ones. Taking in school and reading it, and I was like, "What your teachers think?" He's like, "Oh, the teachers don't know know what what's in it." Yeah, I, bet, I was going to say, "I bet their teachers don't understand it." <laughs> and he's like, and he's been going in school reading it, and he's got this this note but pad. I think I told you about it. He's got this like, so I bought him a proper leather file of facts, right? Really smart one with um these these things. We threw all the dates and crap away and just put note the notebook in there, and he goes through his file of facts and writes notes, and he's got tons of these notes in there now that he's writing and it's like i'm well proud of him it's like you, you get love it yeah he's asking me stuff that i don't understand and i'm like i don't i don't get it explain it to me and he is doing um so doing this what we're doing is he's helping me be a dad cool that's badass i love right. that we'll see you all next week guys thank you Callum. Brilliant. see you next time laters cheers mate see you later bye-bye Bye.